Hey, you guys, this is Julian Klein, and you're listening to the Bladeology Podcast. going to jump into it this week as we uh have set a trend doing welcome to another uh episode of bladeology podcast we're joined this week by infamous knife maker forger and man of all trades mr matt diskin nice hello another oh, hello. Matt diskin. Um, matt diskin. i'm jeremiah burbank from pvk vegas i'm also here with uh, a couple other people yeah, Elijah Isham from uh, Isham Bladeworks and my personal Instagram. <laughs> I wasn't believing that. Yeah. Uh, and Nick Chuperin of NCC Knives. All right, I'm Matt Diskin. Bam. Uh, infamous, I guess. That's yeah. I would say infamous for sure. I think uh, I think your your reputation certainly precedes you. Uh, okay. For the for the for the best, yeah, um, was in the past. <laughs> yeah. So um, so yeah, so we're pretty pumped to have you on here. Obviously, we we've talked to you at shows many times. We're, we're all familiar, but uh, I think yeah. there are many many questions waiting to be to be spoken about and 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 answered and asked. Uh, that that Nick and Elijah have for you as certainly I do. Um. But let's let's get into the let's get into the early stuff if if we can let's go over let's go over the Matt Diskin timeline. Oh, uh, how did wagon train? Yeah, yeah. Essentially, the 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 motion west and the forging of the river and the building of the of the teepees <laughs> from the wagon building obviously. of the teepees. Well, yeah. let's see. I uh, as a kid, I was kind of a woodworker with my dad. Definitely into tools. Um. And then it carried on, basically, as I graduated high school, I was building some furniture and doing some cabinet work, tables. And uh, then I moved down to California to go to school and fuck around and learn things that weren't involved with school. So um, I ended up basically uh, in an engineering program that was a systems engineer. And uh, we learned all about robotics and uh, machining in general. It was setting up machining centers and systems to fully automate basically chip production because it was in the Silicon Valley. Uh And so I, I learned all these skills as far as the machine shop was involved. Uh, both the conventional machining, grinding, service grinding, as well as real early on CAD programming and CAM programming. Even uh, a lot of it was focused on what are called SCARA robots, which are like the pick and place robots you see for assemblies and automobile production and the such, you know, the moving arm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, uh, so we had different uh, forms of CAM program that that we were learning, as well as 
the early AutoCAD stuff. So the first AutoCAD I learned was 11, which was all commands. So it wasn't GUI interface at all. Basically, I had to know all the, and I'm making myself sound really old. But it carried on into to regular AutoCAD that I still use today, hmm. and uh, as well as Fusion, SolidWorks. Um, so as I was going to school in San Jose State, I started making knives, kind of in a garage, living in a place called Capitola, which was right on the beach in Santa Cruz, and uh, basically had a shitty little four-inch grinder in my living room and was teaching myself to grind blades, ground a couple hundred blades and gave them away. Uh, then I got myself a real grinder. And about three years into it, I contacted the Valentin family. So it was... Uh, about what year is this? Uh, 1996, I would say. Oh, wow. Oh, God. I was born that year. <laughs> <laughs> Just as old as Nick is. <laughs> okay. So I, I went up and I called him and, and uh, basically talked to Rainey. And Rainey's like, you know, I was having trouble grinding. He's like, I'll teach you how to grind. So I went up there and spent a couple days. And we actually made. Uh, we made my first double action. Hmm. He taught me how to grind off an aluminum block, straighten everything out, and we went through the whole process. I had already made a couple of lockbacks at that point, but went through basically a liner lock with a cross pin release for a double action. And uh, it was sort of dagger shaped, like uh, what I was leaning for. To it, it kind of led to the uh, the fishtail knife. I was gonna say I have I have a knife that looks very much like that you're describing. So yeah, the fishtail was basically my first semi-production, you know, attempt. And uh, while I was up there, I should say that I really hit it off with Butch. You know, the first time we met, Rainy and I have been friends all this time, but Butch and I have. Almost became best friends for a long time there. We we uh, talked all the time and traveled to shows and stayed together at all the shows together. So I over the years I I built a a really cool relationship with Butch that I treasure. Um, that's awesome. That's so, very lucky. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's it was very much like a father figure in my life. So. Uh, going back to the fishtail production, this is still like 1996. I had a friend up here who had already graduated college in like 94, and he went to work for a company called, uh, back then it was Flow, Flow Technology, I think it was called in the beginning. And it was basically the beginning of uh, today's modern water jet cutting machine was developed mm. this company was all based on government grants and they did all kinds of crazy shit from polishing satellite lenses with water jets to uh they were cutting cadbury chocolates at one time just using liquid nitrogen and no bracing oh. 
And so my, my friend Dave, he he spent a year just on aggregates, figuring out the best sand type to use for water jet machines. And they, they finally came up with garnet, which is what is the industry standard today. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the innovations happened at this. And anyways, he, he worked there. And so I was able to cut out my prototypes on one of the very uh, first water jet machines for that fishtail. Nice. Hmm. Now, this is going to be interesting for most people, but for me, like, so what kind of PSI, like, I'm, I've seen water jets run a lot because when I used to share space on NG Steel Baron, yeah, but, like, were, so what kind were, of PSI? What, the what intensifiers were already invented mm-hmm. earlier on. Uh, this company pretty much put everything together. They, uh, it didn't happen until Ingersoll ran created the nozzles those uh it's a carbide the carbide nozzle nozzle? okay and then into the nozzle goes an orifice which is a ruby um so that was all kind of invented by other people but they put the actual machine together with the sand injected in on a table Mm. uh it was a guy muhammad hashish was his name the my my friend dave's boss and he he went on to uh form flow flow international mm-hmm. which is the biggest water jet company and a lot of the stuff was spurned from their omac and it, it all came from mm-hmm. this area um but yeah we would we would work in autocad 12 and then convert it to like a very version early version of MasterCam, and then spend 12 hours trying to debug all the programming get it into this ancient post-processor and then cut out the parts and so he did all the prototyping. I actually found a, a company up here when I did the production run that cut out all the, the uh, fishtail parts. So for years, I was doing fishtail daggers. Uh, made several hundred of them. 400 so you would, or so. You would water jet the fishtail, and then you were machining? Because it, it, the one I have is relatively contoured, so you were hand contouring that, or you hand were contouring, doing the contour? Hand contouring, wow. hand, hand chamfering, and then hand contouring. So mm-hmm. I ate a lot of titanium doing those. The insides were CNC'd, the pockets. Okay. Yeah, uh, for the mech? Yeah. For the trigger. And it's, it's one of the triggers that Butch taught me that I... You know, I never really felt that comfortable with. It doesn't have a lot of spring engagement. So I don't get them back anymore. I haven't for a decade. But in the beginning, you know, the finicky movement, for sure. So was that, was that an early Pac-Man sear? Or was that no, a, it's a, it's called a teeter sear. So it's okay. basically like a latch. A lot of the autos that are single action are like a latch lever, where it's just a block rectangular block and you push on one end and the other end dips into the blade oh so, like a okay yeah like an italian or like a mic off yeah like a latch okay. release. so this is a latch release that is tilted at an angle and it engages the leaf spring okay so it locks down the leaf spring and then the rest of the blade works as a regular everything else is free to work as a regular liner lock or frame lock how many different types of sears are there like that are known Ooh, that I know of. Yeah, six, six. Wow. There you go. Mm, interesting. And how, off topic. Yeah. How many of those have you used? Um, four, three, 
Okay. Oh wow. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, well, well, the one that I took apart in Amsterdam, which one's that called? With that's, the sheet metal. That's basically my saddle, and it was based off Butch's first uh, scale releases. Was basically half of that. It was just an L-shaped tab that was screwed down and bent over into the plane of the blade. So it wasn't supported on the other side. It wasn't supported on the other side. So that—that's what I did. I was able to have those made, supported on on both sides, so it distributes the force across both liners. Hmm. Yeah, it's hmm. easier to trigger that way, and it also allows for more engagement. The thickness has to be very accurate because you pretty much always have to use the same thickness materials to get that one to work. Like I took that on the part and everything has to always be the same. And then also it's a pain in the ass to put together because you kind of have to like angle it in. You do. You have to know how to put them together for sure. Hmm. Yeah, because when when we were at Bill's shop, he took that one up the Amsterdam part. And like the most important part of him taking like the final things apart and how it comes apart uh, yeah, I turned my head at that moment, and I turned back. And he's like, "Okay, put it back together." And I was like, "Oh fuck!" I don't know how to make <laughs> where it that, back where together. That you want, like three hours? No, I put it back in like I got like five minutes. No, he he. Well, it was like a good okay. solid twenty minutes. Yeah, it was pretty impressive yeah. though. There's a little trick to it. You just got to yeah. turn it over and spin mm-hmm. it out. So, so you were water jetting the fishtails and machining them, and then and then hand contouring hand the bodies. Contouring. Hand ground and then all the blades. All hand ground blades. Fitting uh, the mechs too. And you were doing this all in um, Oregon. It started in California and at that okay. time about say a year into it. I was living in this place in Santa Cruz called Harvey West Park. It's a basically like an industrial park. I was living down in this space and above it was band practice studios till three in the morning. Yeah, and there were no no, I didn't have my own private bathroom, so I was like taking Cuban baths, you know, every day at the band studios. And... Hey, bro, you know my situation right now at my shop, so <laughs> I am not that far. Cuban baths. So, anyways, my parents are like, listen, we got this place up here on, on the island. Why don't you come move your shop up here? And California was getting, it always was pretty nasty as far as being a switchblade maker. Yeah. Um, it was always on the back of my mind. So, Not the best place to be for that kind of stuff. And, and Santa Cruz itself is not a very industrial place. Nobody's really there to work hard. And, uh, you know, Seattle's much more industrial, industrious. So it worked out. I, I came up here and moved my shop. I didn't have that much stuff at the time. Um, and then uh, proceeded to, for a few years to continue to make the fishtails. And then, so while uh, you were while you were making the fishtails, were you still? I mean, obviously, you're so you're now you're in Butch's neighborhood. Um, yeah. So, so you guys were like hanging out and like working on stuff, developing, or like uh, yeah, we were working basically towards the V and D. Okay. All right. That yeah, I was, was going to get to that. That came around the year 2000, I think. Okay. Um, so he had already done... Rainey had done some uh, scale releases that, that triggered from the other side, the, the rear scale, mm-hmm. the sidewinder. 
and Butch had done some, and Butch had come up with the sear and had some contacts on uh, through his Timberline stuff that he was doing. All right. And okay. uh, the guys from Timberline, John Anton, introduced us to uh, our Taiwanese manufacturer mm-hmm. that we ended up going with. And uh, basically, yeah, got it all designed and had it made so we we had to add a few parts after we brought it in. We came in and it was just a regular folder. And these are because of customs laws, correct? Yeah. So we added the sears and the springs and uh, the actuator, which the actuator is basically what the handle attaches to. Right. That returns it back into place. Um, and at that point, it was all Butch's internally. It was all Butch's idea. I designed and drew the CAD on the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was using his one-sided sear that you were describing earlier, yeah. or that was okay. Yeah. Right. They were all the one-sided L sear. The uh, saddle sear didn't come about until the Amsterdam. Okay. And then I started using it on everything. On the fire, fire of the revolution. Oh, I was gonna ask you new ones because I, I never when I had the fire, I never had the chance to take it apart. Yeah. So that was before I was a maker. So I was that, I was uh, scared to take that apart. It's got the same sear, and I I wouldn't venture further. I don't really like the Pac Man sear because it takes up more room mm. in the choil. Need a bigger choil. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually really... see. I actually like the Pac-Man sear because in my idea, I had it was easier for me to make it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'd like to make pretty much a frame lock dual action with uh, almost like a sliding bolster, kind of so like a little the, dovetail the, piece. The Pac-Man sear is actually a we Butch always called it the Ford sear because it mm. was designed by a guy named Ford Swagger. You may may be able to find some of his knives online, but he, he's a guy from Oregon, from Butch's yep. neighborhood. Right, really yeah, you were yeah, really inventive See, stuff. You were telling me that is so the the right. So Butch learned actually from another guy. You know, if I would say, uh, I mean, I I'm not asking exactly, you to speak for him, but, but just you know, so there was one guy before him named John okay. Hopkins. Who was making double action autos? He was from Eastern Washington. Gene. Wow. What is? Oh, I'm like thinking. Why is the name so familiar? We have John Hopkins Hospital. I here. didn't. Yeah. I'm I like. Well, I'm like. Oh, no. John Hopkins. <laughs> he made. He made small like inner frame double actions where you would push on the inlay. Really. So bad. that that type of knife has been in that neck of the woods of the U.S. for generations. Then. It's like Bigfoot. No, this guy's not that old. He's probably oh, younger really? than Butch. Oh, okay. Oh, well, that's okay. But Butch is not a young guy. And Butch didn't get into knives until he was in his 40s, I think. Oh, okay. Wow, that's impressive. Mm. Um, he had another son named Sean, who I believe was actually the genesis of it all. He started making knives first and got Butch into it. And Rainy as well, around the same time. They all moved up from california up to oregon interesting and uh you know sean's sean died two years ago oh he was he was younger he was the youngest Hmm. there 
of youngest son. Um, he made double action autos too. Left hand, left hand made was his nice tag. Hmm. Um, Does anybody know like where the where the start of the double action mechanism, the sear and everything, where like the culmination of it happened? Yeah, a lot um, of it had to have been out of Butch's mind. Really? Yeah. Certainly the the. That's really impressive that he started doing that when he was in his 40s. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. That's most, crazy. You see, a lot of people have their best ideas, you know, in their 20s. Yeah, kind of early on, yeah. Musicians, scientists, even, uh, you know, knife makers. I always mm, used yeah. to talk about this. Damn it, so I have to figure out some cool shit now before I get older. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a... a naivety to being young where you don't realize how much it takes to get something done as you yeah, get older, just kinda, I think as I already older, asked like, Jesus I'm not going through that process and <laughs> what it takes to, to get it done right huh. so yeah it's a there's this thing I call a basket of creativity it's kind of a theory I've got do you tell we're all we're all born with this basket, mm-hmm. okay? And as we come into like a craft, whether we're a musician or even a scientist, you've got this basket of raw ideas. You don't really know all the stipulations and parameters of how things are meant to be. So you're willing to try all these crazy things. Mm. And then as you, as you develop stuff and take stuff out of your basket, you have less and less of this creativity and you start basically emulating yourself or emulating other people. Yeah. And it kind of becomes like a parody of yourself, which is kind of the worst thing to do. Um, And this is where stylization and personalized stylization comes in, especially in knife making where people develop, you know, style that you can see from across the room. Right. I know one thing that a lot of people ask me, like, what's the most important part about, like, designing knives and or anything to do with pretty much any aspect of, of uh, visual art is, yeah. you know, you have to kind of come up with your own style. Like, that's the oh, most yeah. important part is to, to uh, discover and then be able to reproduce your style, like, consistently. Yeah, yeah like design style, language, right? Yeah, once mm-hmm. your yeah. style is set, you've got these set of parameters that you kind of work under. Yeah, it's like it's done, and then you can just go off of it, yeah. But it's really hard to take a jump to the left from there and come up with new things. Yeah, it is. Everything I make ends up being a freaking Tanto or a warm Yeah, and I'm tired of grinding Tantos. They look great and all, but I want to grind something easier at this point. To find a a guy like Butch, who was able to come up with new and inventive mechanisms and ideas, you know, that late in life and then well into his 60s, like literally an invention like that's not like a like a thing yeah. like that's like he literally invented right. something yeah it is it, it's yeah. a rare bird that's pretty incredible so the v and d was like a that was a just just for record the that's valentin and diskin right that's what it was kind that was a, a collaboration play, kind of a play on words too okay. it should have just been called the bd <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it was the collaboration uh the first couple hundred we assembled together. I ended up assembling the last couple thousand of them myself. But 
Butch would make the sears. So he would he would do parts and I would do parts and I don't so even how, know, I don't even know how many he ended up uh, doing them. Right. It, it was a lot. But I remember I may remember seeing V and D's for like when I started when I started hanging out when I was older with Josh in the shop, like I remember seeing a V and D and handling it probably yeah. in like I don't know, like twenty like two thousand eight maybe, two thousand Yeah. Like seven? It went on for good, close to ten years, I would say. Okay, all right. Yeah, I was gonna say, I was like, wow, all right. And we we shared a table at the Blade Show together for all those years, room together. And uh, yeah, and then I basically uh, Boker wanted to do a deal. Boker actually had a deal with the V and D. Oh. Uh, we worked out a deal where they distributed them in Europe and uh, we did the American side because they were working with the same manufacturer in Taiwan mm. so we had a couple meetings with Karsten and set it all up it was actually a pretty good deal and then that led to the you know what the Coronado was Coronado uh, was a, sounds a familiar little, it was a little assisted opener the less than three inches um and i did that by myself wait was that the slimmer version that, that was a vulcan wasn't it it was vulcan it was yeah that's vulcan. why that sounds familiar it was, it was like yeah. had like a really slim handle with like a beefy blade yeah, yeah. Okay. and kershaw ran that after right and then kershaw did the strobe based on okay exactly. that strobe was like the first thing i'd seen of yours and i was like whoa this okay. is like so simplistic but yet like it's all right this looks perfect yeah it was pretty good it was uh had a little run it was one of those first ones that the strobe that proved that they could do a kvt bearing non-assisted you know what i don't think it was the strobe i think it was the fixed blade version of it well there was there was the the disc and hunter was first yeah that's i remember that's what it was because (laughs) at the time i was like super into bushcraft still and um I remember seeing that, and I was like, "Oh, this might be a like a cool option for like a bushcraft knife." But I think it was hollow ground, so like it wouldn't it was. and it wouldn't and work as well. Yeah, yeah. Made so, the US. okay. So I was gonna say, so that was the fixed blade was under the Kershaw label. Under the Kershaw label, yeah. Okay, that was, which yeah, you, that thing was which like you got to awesome. from from Boker with the notoriety from the Boker. No, no. Oh. So the uh, Boker and I did the Coronado together. Same okay. thing where we split the tooling. They got the European market and paid me a royalty, and I got the American market. Hmm. Um, okay, so that was not that was not a Vulcan. That was a just that was a, the, just a, the Vulcan. They did it under. Oh, the that Vulcan. okay. So it was, remember, okay, B- Boker has an OEM that they kind of run. Yeah, yeah. which kind of died for a little while. You didn't see people working with them. Now recently, there's a kind of resurgence of people mm-hmm. running their OEM again. And they used to sell. All kinds of stuff in their catalog, Spiderco and all Benchmade and stuff. It was, they were like a distributor at one point for all that hmm. to the German market. Um, so they didn't mind taking on another brand name, which is what it was. And oh. uh, and then they wanted another double action, so I very read very quickly drew up the Amsterdam. Didn't spend a lot of time on that drawing. Um, and at first, at first, it had a spidey hole, 
and they took it to Spider-Co, and Eric's like, yeah, I don't think we're going to be too happy. So we changed it to that old bullshit. <laughs> really? Yeah. I don't think we're too happy about that. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, it, it turned into a pretty good product. Um, there's still a demand for them. Yeah, I was going to say, the Amsterdam is still, um, I mean, you still have that at shows with you now. You had those yeah, in, I mean, in yeah, still have Vegas. If, if I had to make like a correlation, it'd be like a, uh, like the swatch of the double action autos, which yeah, is like awesome. Yeah. It's like literally, it's like the Probably. the most cost effective like double action you can get into. Oh yeah, pretty awesome. No, the Amsterdam is super legitimate. I mean, it, like it has like no competition. No, yeah. well, I haven't ordered any more because I have to order a couple thousand of them. Yeah, and it's just I'd, I'd like to get something else going, a new new design going. Just have yeah, do like the do same that. build, but like in a new design or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, same internals for the most That'd part. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, it'll happen sooner and later. So, uh, let's see. We're at the Amsterdam. The Kershaw. Yeah, so, and... okay, Kershaw to Amsterdam, and then um, and then where does that take us? Okay, so so that, then it kind of takes us to about 2010, 2011, and that's where I'm at, Matt. Yeah. Because uh, I remember I got my first shows oh nine. And I met Matt when I was 15, so I guess 11, my second show, when I actually started spending more money on knives. And he showed up to the New York Custom Knife Show, and everyone thought he was a new maker back then. Well, because it was his first time at the show. I don't, I, my, Matt, I don't know what your impressions was on that. Like, what did you think when everyone was there? He showed up to the show with yeah. like, this been guitar there. was $350. Everyone was there. It was pretty much the talk of the show. <laughs> this guy with $350 is dual action, which most people still didn't know what that was back then. And yeah, that was fun. I, I had done the show 2001 or 2002. Oh, this is okay. New York still. Yeah, it was at the the uh, Crown Plaza. Because mm-hmm. I missed New York by two years. When I, when and, I started, I was already Jersey. And uh, so I did it one year and I was I got so fucking pickled. The first night, I uh, basically slept through the show on Saturday. Oh, boy. In layman terms, he got sure. really fucked up. Yeah. And, I, I only and made, like, didn't go there pretty much work. I didn't come back for another 15 years. Wow. <laughs> years. Sometimes it happens. Wow. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> so you got so fucked up in New York, you're like, this isn't a good place for me. Yeah. Because in 2001, you would have that would would that have been like your first knife show, other than maybe the Eugene no, show or something? No. First very knife show was like '97. Yeah, he said he was doing in, uh, Eugene, Oregon. Okay. Yeah. This is the original Blade show because I remember. Yeah. Blade and was before then, first. I I used to go. Uh, Basically, as a hobbyist maker, uh, living in basically in the Bay Area, there was a lot of shows. There was a San Jose mm. show. There was a Sacramento show. Okay. There was also a San Jose, and then the Bay Area Knife Show, which was up in uh, up by Stanford. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mark Mark said that there was like a new show, uh, pretty local to them right now in the Bay Area. Like oh. it just started or something. The Recon One. No, 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 that's in uh, Anaheim. Yeah, I've heard it's the back, the back to show or something. They're trying to get back together. Mm. Yeah, yeah sure. probably. Yeah. I don't know, but there's too many shows there at that time of the year, and like 
we have no shows for about three to four months between Vegas and Blade. Yeah, you know, boom, some boom, stuff boom, to like that. Week after week. Yeah. So, what yeah. did you do? So, before we get to 2010, what did during this whole time you're doing yeah. the Fishtail, you're doing the you're doing these collaboration products, you're doing the Boker, you're doing the Kershaw, and you're you still know, custom and, making this whole time. Well, oh, wait. actually, for a lot of this time, I was foraging. Yeah, that's what I thought I'd just bring up because. Okay. You showed me an old piece back at that same show. When I started asking you questions, because I bought two fires that first show, a black yeah. one and a Saturn. And yeah. then you started showing me all your forging stuff. And this is when I first started understanding customs. You just blew my mind. You showed me some stuff that you submitted because you weren't just like a forger. You were like, you were an ABS. You weren't a master smith or a journeyman. I got journeyman. Never, which, never. Which, no one, which like, no one ever knows because you never talk about this. <laughs> I like, gotta admit, I was pretty surprised when I found out. Like, what? It's a breakdown. Journeyman's like third tier, right? Out of like four tiers. Yeah, back so in like there. 2000, I I went to uh, Washington, Arkansas, to the wow. school there. They have the forging school, and so I I spent a week. The first time was uh, both of them were Damascus classes, and the second one was with Bill Moran. Mm, oh and, shit! Uh, yeah, spent a week with him. Uh, it was kind of funny because I'd already been forging like three years, and I had gotten into mosaics and was, you know, we we were even doing some powder stuff by then. Oh wow! And so I had the first day I had like seven builds laid up, and I was doing some, basically going for an, an intricate basket weave, and Bill's like, "Oh, you better slow down because." There's some people here who haven't even got their belts stuck together. <laughs> hey, so, yeah, you're just like, that's their problem. Yeah, yeah you're like, yeah, I'm blowing past right. this shit. So, I helped people out for the rest of the week. It, you know, it was a good experience. Hmm. And I have a lot of friends that, uh, a lot of really close friends that are mosaic blacksmiths and Damascus makers and now, you sh you showed me a knife back then. I think it was the one you submitted for your journeyman. It was essentially about an 8-inch bowie. I forgot the handle material was. The blade was some crazy Damascus you made. Yeah. But what really I liked about the knife was, I think the, it was sheath. the sheath. What, it yeah. wasn't even the, it's not even the sheath technically. It's technically a scabbard. Because yeah, he made a one scabbard. Yeah, he made a one-piece Mokume wow. scabbard. But not standard Mokume. It was made out of nickel and sterling silver. Yeah. I remember no, right. Nickel and pure silver. Oh, pure silver. And yeah. it wow. just... Yeah, mm -hmm. so you see like a bluish silver and then like a white silver color because the nickel and, and the silver. Yeah. And that was essentially the scabbard for the sheath. And that was mm -hmm. the first time I actually seen like a modern scabbard. I didn't know at that time people were still doing that. <laughs> but that, that was an insane yeah. build. Yeah, yeah. I was really kind of into the silversmithing side of it. Of course, you're Jewish. And... and uh, <laughs> definitely into the historic antebellum period buoys of the uh basically deep south hmm. um, oh, very specific time it's like really interesting yeah. to me right now for some reason yeah so and, and it all goes back to uh, a lot of people don't even realize this but america's original custom knife makers uh, -huh. uh and there's only a handful of them we're talking 1830s 1840s yeah. They were basically you couldn't couldn't survive as a knife maker. They were basically medical instrument makers, 
or silversmiths. Um, kind of like a jack of all trades. Well, they had to be able to harden steel mm-hmm. and also do all the handle work. And so there, there's groups. They were they were grouped in different areas. New York had some. Boston had some. Uh, Natchez, Mississippi, catered a lot. And then there was a handful group over in the Gold Rush area in California, the uh, Michael Prices and Will and Fink stuff. So I did a lot of Michael Price stuff, ring dagger. Um, I did one Bradford dagger. I don't know if you know the Michael Price take apart knife where it's uh, a silver framed handle. And then the center parts have like, it's a coffin shape or dog bone shape pretty much. And then it's got uh, studs kind of in a diamondish pattern. Very famous old knife. I'm not familiar hmm. with that, but I could kind of picture what you're talking yeah. about. That name sounds like oddly familiar. Michael but... Price is yeah. one of the most famous uh, knife makers of this period. Hmm. He, he was in San Francisco. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Skagel, right? Oh Skagel. yeah, yeah. And that's a that's like two generations later. Yeah, this is so way after later. These guys. He was in the 20s. oh yeah. Skagel yeah. was like uh, he he kind of yeah. was around like. The 30s, 40s, 50s? Yeah, 20s, yeah. 20s, 30s, 40s. Yeah. And all of us started to know this. Leading into Rainbow podcast. Yeah, mm-hmm. like a lot of people consider him to be like the father of modern knife making, in mm-hmm. a way. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Damn it. Matt, I can't find that freaking Mokume Silver. Uh, it's on my Instagram page. Uh, really? You, I'm, I'm like Googling a... all sorts of shit trying to find it. Matt, yeah, do you got... have a large collection of stuff that you forged? Like, do you do you keep no. this stuff or no? Oh. I was just gonna say, like, where can people find pictures? Yeah, my Instagram page, like all the bottom half pic- pictures or older stuff. Yeah, hmm. eighty posts shouldn't be too hard to find. So you were yeah. you were forging for a while then? Uh... Oh yeah, and I did really focusing on that for a long time. Basically, while the V&Ds were happening, I wasn't making a lot of custom knives unless it was a carbon steel buoy or Damascus. Yeah. So you were trying to get a master smith or you were just, this was just intensely, you like you were it passionate was, about the process. That was the idea. At okay. One point. Um, I kind of saw the value of it diminish. Okay. The process... The process to build the five knives, I mean, at this point, would take me a lot of effort. Um, yeah. I just found it on your Instagram, but that's not the knife. You had a, <laughs> it's kind of, it was like your dog bone knife, uh, but the sheath was that nickel silver sheath, but it was more like a raindrop pattern. The one on your Instagram is like a dagger with the nickel silver sheath. Mm-hmm. Michael Price style. There. Yeah, that's the Michael Price dagger. It should be up there. The uh, and what we're talking about now, I'll post this later in the Bladeology Instagram so people could, could follow up with this and see some of your older work. Yeah, I'm just looking. So, yeah, the Bradford daggers there. The one maybe it's not the one you know, which I'm really talking jumps about. out had, to me, yeah, a proper Bowie, but yeah, like it was like a raindrop Damascus, it was a dog bone. Hmm. The one piece that like really jumps out to me on your page is the uh, the Michael Price style uh, dual ring guard dagger. Yeah. 
Yep. That one's yeah. pretty incredible. Jer, if you want to see, I put, I just posted it in the group, and you'll see it. So that ring uh, dagger was Mokume on the scabbard. And mm-hmm, then yeah, there, I see that. There's a dog bone. So I did three of the dog bones. And the the one you see the picture right after the... Yeah, uh, yeah it has a really it, it has a crazy scabbard on that one, too, but it's not... So the that's, that's Mokume on the, the throat and the button, but it's argentium silver throughout the whole sheath. Mm-hmm. Wait, yeah. what's Argentia? Like I know, so Star Silver is ninety-five percent. Yeah, it's, it's it's a it's a form of silver. I can't remember what the alloying element is, but it doesn't tarnish as bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kind of tricky to work with soldering it. Um. So yeah, and there's some pictures of some of the corkscrew stuff I used to do. Now, is yeah. that are those sheets lined some kind of way? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they would be. Uh, uh, I did different stuff on through throughout. Um, Do they have like sheepskin in the uh, no, uh, in the top of there? The, the like throat. oil blade or something? I, I, yeah, like throat. a felt, like thick skin. <laughs> <laughs> um, but on, I would line them with that uh, PTFE Teflon. Oh, all okay, right. No, so it gets it kind of tight in there, and it won't slip out. Hmm. That's what everybody wants. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so do you see the uh, the corkscrew knife above it? Mm. With the it's got kind so. of a crazy Damascus pattern. It's two above the Bradford. One. Yeah, I didn't. What what was your the? I've seen those pop up from time to time on yeah. Arizona in the past. What was the just a another classical form? Uh, you know, it was basically had to do with that show in Paris. Okay. So I would bring one or two every year. I did that for several years. This is the uh, the Feeks show? Yeah. Yeah. Well, no. Back then it was just CCAC. Oh, okay. I gotcha. So, and how, okay. How long? When, when did you start going to that? Like oh. during the forging period? Yeah. No. no, no. This, I've been there 16 years. I think, oh, wow. Well, so you, for one you've year. known Yvonne for quite a while. I have. Yeah. Well, he's a good, good dude. Through good and I mean, bad. You know, <laughs> I guess they drink a lot of wine. So, I mean, that's that's good to have a... a cor- I mean, there, must, wine be, and there cheese. must be people interested in that. Yep. The uh, people's biggest complaint to that show is it used to be the fanciest show in Europe. Hmm. Uh-huh. It was yeah. at the, the top of this really nice hotel. and They would have a dinner the night before. And basically, it kept going... The setting of it kept getting... So, ba- so basically, TKI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, now it's in a basement, like the shitty area of town. But basically, it TKI. It's it still pretty <laughs> awesome. I mean, last it year wasn't too bad. People and it, it works. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I have yet to uh, go to the Feek show because uh, when I was with Mark and Mantia, they didn't. We kind of slipped in that day and didn't have a chance to get over there. But well, is it during the same of, time as CCAC? Yeah, it's the same weekend. But yeah. uh, it's kind of like this... the taking over from the fancy side. Yeah, I did that one for three years in a row. And it's it's the best show location. Yeah, so it's got that, ever the skylights. Yeah. yeah, it's all natural lighting. In this place. Oh, that's gorgeous. That's incredible, yeah. A, uh, a glass terrarium, terrarium. Yeah, we'll all have to uh, check that out this year for sure. And you're uh, so you're doing the Feeks this year? 
no, I'm just no. on CCAC. They put them right you. on top of each other this year. Yeah, like, for some so reason, why exactly are they the same? Days. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. So, so last year I was able to do both. I did one day at one and two days at the other. But yeah. Got a pick this time. So you brought a lot yeah. of forged corkscrew knives to, to Paris over the years then. If, if yeah. you want to find one, that's probably a good place to look. Yeah, a lot of them are in Europe. Um, a lot of them are actually with one collector over there. Oh. Um, so yeah, I did the forging work. and mm. Now, do you still do some of that stuff? Because like I see on your Instagram, and at least in 2016, no. you had a naval B2, now B1. I do. Still, still have it. it. Still have one B. It's you in suck. storage. You suck even more if it's in storage. God. I have a, I have an incredible forging shop. I got a rolling. You, mill. you have a rolling mill and a forging press. You want to sell? I got I got this press that I built. It's my favorite press I've ever used. Hmm. How many tons? Because I, I want to get I want a fifty ton. Oh, it's at least a. It's back down. It'll. It's it's at least a hundred tons. Yeah, so what, you're, are you running like two, 10, horse, 10 horse motors on there, I guess? Yeah, two fives. Uh, two fives can still get you 100 tons? With <laughs> yeah. It's, it all has to do with your die size, a lot of that. Well, a die and a piston, but you still need a certain, like, from what I my reading, you still need a certain motor to run the certain piston, and then you oh, have you to do. do the math of the hydraulics. Mm-hmm. Like, the one that I plan on building ended up being with the five horsepower motor that I had, plus the, the piston, the two pistons was like 48 tons or something. Yeah, and your pump. So I don't I don't go for the fast high speed pump, mm-hmm. or the there's there's one pump that gives you like fast and then it kicks over to low. So I just got low setting, huh. and uh, I don't have a lot of uh, throw on the piston. I don't have a lot of travel, mm-hmm. six inches. Yeah, that's plenty. Yeah, yeah, and if I need to to for lower, it, I just fastest. take. I've got plates underneath. I just take away if I need more room. But I haven't lit the forge up there in shit four years, maybe longer. That's it's not full that of bad. it's full of sheets of carbon fiber. Right <laughs> okay. So how big is this forge? That's a that's a nice that's a nice interlude from from talking about forging to the inevitable fiber yes. smith period. Oh, um, yes. You were forging forever. You still have all the forging gear. You say you're never going to forge again. I'm, I'm sure I, you are. No, no, I, but... I'm, I'm, I just found a new piece of property, and my plan is to expand and be able to forge some more. Oh, you, you need to get that master smith. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll take that. that rolling wheel off your hands if you don't need it. <laughs> I no, think it's, it those are so like hard. To, those are so hard title to title at this point. This was a real good one. I, I bought it, but it's uh, it's got outdoor outboard rollers. Yeah, they're just so hard they're hard to find. There's one guy who makes them like South Af- South America or South Africa or something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When I was looking, I read that I ideally I'd like a like a 50 ton forge and press and rolling mill. Hmm. Yeah. So my rolling mill's hydraulic, and up and down and the rolls. So I, I just run it off the same 10 horsepower power unit that my press runs off. Oh, that's cool. They can run together. Yeah, it's just linked together. I can't really run them both at the same time, but because like I I forged Damascus on a fifty, uh, I think yeah, fifty ton power hammer, which I wasn't the biggest fan of. Uh, yeah, doing it for the stainless Damascus at least. Yeah, the impact puts a lot of cracks in it. But like I did a twenty five ton like one of those Uncle Al's, 
And for the titanium, it worked great. But mm-hmm. the, the stainless steel Damascus is not the best. It's, uh, you yeah. bar- you're barely moving it, and then you can't really get a deep pattern into it. Yeah. So I figured if I'm buying it for like cry once, buy once, because a 50 tons is like two times the cost, a little more actually, and two times the cost. Yeah. And Uncle Al's is like $3,500, which is a great price. Honestly, for the price. If, if you can weld. There's nothing better than building it yourself because you know how to fix it when you break it. That was the plan at one point, but being in New York, none of the scrapyards would let you in to like scavenge them to get stuff. <laughs> mm. Or uh, if you're really cool, reasons. you could just do away with the press and just use that hammer. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, just, use a, just use a hammer and go by hand. I'm curious, <laughs> are there any master smiths that have actually done that? Well, carbon, well, plenty of people do it, but stainless uh, steel, you're, yeah. not gonna, you're not going to be yeah. able to move it because it, yeah. you won't. Yeah, I don't know if different. you get it to weld even. No, they, any, like, I, I've met guys who've who done it with carbon. No, no, but yeah. when, stainless. I don't know. Oh, no, yeah, you won't get it to weld. No, no. It's it different. It doesn't yeah. weld till it's deformed quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Are there any, like, working mastersmith makers that have actually uh, got their mastersmith by just hand-forging? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, actually, there's a couple friends of mine, like a guy named Christoph Derringer, uh-huh. who's just a master with a hammer. He takes... I got a knife of his that's made from like a three-quarter inch ball, like a, wow. a, a pinball ball. Uh-huh. And he stretches it out. It's It's got a hidden tang with a forged butt cap, forged bolster. All by hand with a hammer. That's All by incredible. hand with a hammer. Yeah. Wow. That's not... I met guys yeah. who make knives quicker with, with by hand than with a power yeah. hammer. Like, I met guys who, who could hand forge a knife quicker than I can with a power hammer, that's for sure. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think that's. I talked about We've talked about that before, though. I mean, there are some processes that, like, there are still guys today who just do who do prototyping quicker by hand. I mean, that's. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of guys like uh, Adam DeRozier. Oh yeah, him and his wife Haley. Yeah. Um, and he's forging full, you know, uh, guards and stuff. Yeah, even all last year, like at Blade Show. Hand. Going to Blade Show and seeing all the posts from makers yeah. leading up yeah. to the show, the one thing that I wanted the most was one of either his or his wife Haley's pieces. For I, for some reason, I just I don't know. That seems like true knife making right there. It really it's is. like intrinsically yeah. amazing when somebody forges something. Yeah, and and she did that uh that keyhole integral with a piece of carbon mm-hmm. fiber, mm-hmm. which I still don't know how that's even possible. But you get, yeah. you get it close and you press it. That's mm-hmm. Press it Without it shattering, though, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It won't shatter. You're going to press out the steel, like I mentioned to you the other day. With, with wood, it's easier because you'll actually broach it. Yeah, you cut so, it. Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, wait, it, Matt, it, you're the one who actually explained this to me. I just remember. What's that? Uh, the, how keyholes work. In oh, the yeah. You explained yeah. to me that with the wood, you actually broach it to fit. The carbon fiber yeah. is a lot harder because you have to get it yeah. to press fit. Mm-hmm. But the edge, the edge that is basically a cutting edge that you're pressing it into. It's like a 90-degree angle, 90 yeah. 90-degree cutting edge. When I found out about that, how those are made, I was like, what? That's crazy. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's just pressed in and cut. Yeah, for, that that all goes back to a guy named Rodrigo. Rodrigo from Brazil. Sofredi. So a keyhole yeah. integral is a pretty modern invention? Yeah, yeah. Wow. I think so. The first one I know that was going. Uh, I don't know. It, it, it seems like they would make them in the past for reasons, the same reasons they made Damascus to where it saved on material. Like you could do yeah. it, they would have the hidden tang that would save on material, but that seems just as viable. Yeah, I, I, 
You're probably right. It's yeah. probably not a modern invention, but all of this stuff is kind of like uh, yeah. it just goes around. It's cyclical. At one yeah. point, it disappears and it comes back, and you know, we we see that. There's been armors since the beginning of mankind. People have always needed to not get poached yeah. through their skin. It's... Yeah. Yeah. Somebody has to discover that Valyrian steel method. You need, some, you need something to kill people with. So did you ever? Because um, I I know this was a uh, when I was in uh, when you were in Vegas this last time. I was talking to a knife maker, Rick Lala, and you and you came up yep. and and I had not known. But uh, did you ever spend time any in, in 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 Brazil? Matt? I did. <laughs> I did. Of course. <laughs> I'm not sure I can talk about it here. Okay. That's oh, fair. okay. But I, I was mean, about so to say, I'm like, Matt, you're a, you're Brazil. a well-traveled <laughs> knife maker, spending time with makers all over the world. Is that the true, yeah. Mister Worldwide? This yeah. was before really knife. Knives. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Back when I was chasing other other endeavors. I gotcha. Other so, physical pursuits. I'm like I'm thinking, man. I'm like I don't think these stories will come out right. <laughs> so you're you're forging, you're forging full time. On yep. the side, you've got the collaboration with Boker and Kershaw. You're yep. rolling out. Um, now during your forging years, have you or did you rather did you did you visit other forgers in in the oh, yeah. in the U.S. that we might we might uh, we might recognize other than the people you've already mentioned, of course. Um, yeah, actually, so after Blade Show, I would go down and spend a couple days with a guy named Steve Schwarzer. He, uh, he's one of the beginning founders of, uh, Mosaic Damascus. Oh, wow. Okay. The character Damascus, which is what I was really into, um, which was actually cutting out, I would cut out characters in different sheets stack them together and fill it in a box fill it with powder around the outside and um, you're, you're talking about like actual recognizable images like um my, my yeah. closest thing i can think of is an, an eggerling pattern where he's got like the skulls in it and stuff is that is that about what we're talking about pretty much okay there was some real cartoony stuff came out of it God, i wish i had a picture of that grateful dead knife that'd be cool um, so I did a full Damascus V&D. Oh, wow. I wonder if it's in Blade Gallery. Um, let's see here. Sometimes you can find some pretty cool gems, uh, like hidden gems on Blade Gallery. So, yeah, the problem is you, do, you have to like go to the section where not the not current makers are. Right. Yeah. So if you go there, if you have a chance. Listeners at home, check this out. Yes. Yeah, Blade Gallery. Uh, he's got a lot of my old knives on there. Mm. I'm trying to, I'm actually trying to get there. Not you know what? Well, while you're trying to find that, that brings up so, a point I, I've talked yeah. about before. It's just such a bummer that we've never, a lot of these knives just disappear into collections and we'll never see them again. It's unfortunate we don't have like a, a service in the industry to like record one-off customs or such because they do just yeah. they completely disappear you know um, it's on those instagram yeah like catalog no, uh, but I mean, like, yeah. something forever that's not instagram that's like desktop based you know well, like be really cool. yeah still, still to, like, go, no to, like go by dealer and then go by maker and then collector and then who has what you know like a catalog yeah. that'd be cool like a dealer uh, collaboration might be good where everyone just donates their pictures of the knives to like a website that will hold it you know, 
Yeah, custom on a server. catalog or something. Yeah. Totally. yeah. Really nice. It was actually an issue for me because I would spend weeks making one knife, you know, and then finally sell it. And the money all became relative. Hmm. You know, all I was left with was a picture. Right. So I was kind of torn. It's like, God, I go through this whole craft and and the money's long gone. Uh, And all you really got to show for it's just a memory. I mean, I guess it's kind of whining, but. No, that's why instead of making one, you make two. No, but I mean, yeah. A few hundred. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, obviously, some of that stuff is just you can't repeat the. The magic in in making that one knife the first time. And, and I then, no, you're don't right. See, that's it. Yeah, it's gone. That, that's the problem being a maker yeah. and a collector and enjoying what you do, because mm-hmm. you make everything's a one off. Like every custom folder, making the same yeah. model, but they're all one offs. There's this once in a while you get that one. It's like crap. I kind of want to keep this one, but then again, there's bills. Yeah, but oh, even then, if you keep bills. it, the rest of us don't get to see it. So it nullifies my point. Like I'm saying, like if you make something and it's amazing. There's no good in any of that if no one ever sees it. I mean, there's yeah. a certain oh, beauty into, in people. it. I just want okay. There's a cute certain <laughs> beauty into it, but I mean, otherwise, the collective unconscious does not get to enjoy your your creation, which is the ultimate. Like that's why Instagram is so popular is because makers can get feedback. They can get that that mm-hmm. emotional connection with the piece uh-huh. they make through the likes. You know, it's if that's what you want. You know, I'm sure most people would find it preposterous, but. I don't think the notion of making a knife like over the span of a couple of years is that crazy, you know, to put that much work into a piece. I mean, yeah, you'd have to sell it for quite a bit, but it'd still be pretty cool. Yeah, and then even um, that, it's all it's all relative. Like, who cares what the money I, is at that I point? I forgot the knife name. Your time is gone, Matt. You know what I'm talking about? Three years ago at Nick's, uh, the one with the 120 hours of just engraving work, the sword, right by the doors on the right side next to Blade Treasury. Yeah, something like that. It's like, oh my god, like somebody put, you know, their soul him, into this piece. Yeah, him and his daughter, or him and his wife. Mm. He made he pretty much so. It's it was a seventy five pound chunk of one fifty four cm. Oh yeah, you know who I'm talking about. He took that seventy five yeah. pound chunk of one fifty four yeah. and made the the short sword out of it. So it ended up being like a four pound sword, but it had a guard that was about six inches wide. So you have to cut away all that material to get to the blade. Exactly. So he just started as a cast. He started as a giant 75 pound billet and removed 71 pounds of it. And then his well, wife or his daughter put in the, about 120 hours in just engraving into that thing. And then, like, yeah, it was, and they came in this giant, like, wooden case that was like velvet or leather lined. That, that's uh, pretty much like Elijah, what you said. Like, that's a long term project. Well, Matt, what's, like the longest, project what's the longest sure. you have on a knife? Oh, God. I don't know. Well, he has some that are going on 10 years at this point. Wow. <laughs> I have <laughs> some, orders, some orders that have gone that long. Actually, working, <laughs> working on it is probably a month. Okay. I'm trying to That's... figure which one it is. Pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah, so if you can actually find Blade Gallery, I just searched Blade Gallery Diskin. Okay. And it's got uh-huh. uh, it's got a lot of the old stuff. It's got the one Nick was talking about. So you made a you made a Damascus V and D while while you were at the um, at the at the shop, which is pretty which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so that pretty much wraps up, you know, early custom stuff. Okay. From then, uh, after the Amsterdam 
the fire came about. And I did quite a few of those. A few hundred. Hmm. Um, over a period of probably five years. And that was that was so that was a scale release just like um just like the Amsterdam. No, it's it's the fire, so it's shaped I don't know, it's kind of sub-ish. Yeah, the the form, it, but the, the mechanics are similar, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes, similar. Different actuator, exact same sear. Um yeah, it was an overlay instead of a full scale. Hmm. That's right. Yeah, it wrote on on top of the yeah, on top of the tie. The it stopped. It, the over travel was stopped on the pivot pin, whereas in the Amsterdam, it stopped on the internal hmm. screw. So the 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 spring pressures on the the triggers are all over pressured and separated out. The handle the handle moves separate from the actual sear so the sear is the one that holds the spring back right if you have them all attached to each other when you go and close the the blade and recock the spring that sear has to recock as well so it's going to move back to get out of the way and then move into place to lock the spring so if it's got a handle attached to it that handle has to move as well gotcha so by separating those out, you can close the spring and relock the spring, and the handle doesn't jump. Yeah, so you can so you can still be squeezing the knife, and then yeah. when when you reload it, so to say, it doesn't it doesn't pop in your hand. Exactly. Gotcha. So every all the springs are overloaded, and then they have certain stops that it stops on. The handle, the handle. If you didn't have the on the on the fire. If you didn't have the pivot pin in, the handle would over-rotate. Okay, hmm. So every, everything's preloaded. And that way it it's prevents from getting sloppy over time. And uh, properly, you can properly uh, time everything so the pressures are all the same. I mean, these, these knives fire hard, too. I mean, I've fired a, a fire and, and an Amsterdam, and they both I mean, yeah. they, they are very enjoyable switchblades to actuate, actuate. Thank you. And a lot of it has, with the fire and the revolution, had to do with going to bearings. Okay. A lot less resistance on the blade, so it makes it fire really hard. Yeah, and you won't make me. Like, the only knife I really want right now is a fire, and I know you have parts for three of them, and you just don't want to make it. <laughs> don't tell anybody that. Top secret information. The fires are all gone. They're all for like gone. four years, she's like, oh, I have parts for three more, but I don't want to make it. I'm like, you asshole. I had, I had one come back last week that the uh, lock insert had cracked. God damn. Basically along where the uh, detent ball was hammered in. Mm-hmm. So I had to replace the lock insert. And I had to reteach myself. It had been so long. I had to figure out how to assemble those things again. Oh, well. It changes, and it's they're they're all kind of different. Yeah, because those knives are, like like Elijah was saying, those are swatches. Like over the years, at least in my tenure, and I know I've asked Josh about it. I don't think I've ever seen uh, the Amsterdam. Yeah, I've never seen an Amsterdam return. I really I can't put my yeah. And we told that to Nick. He's like, oh, challenge accepted. 
want to dry yeah. fire this thing until it breaks. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so if you try to break it, sure. But I, honestly, I've never had a customer come back and go, hey, this just broke because I was using it. It's yeah. the other kind of I can't I remember. I get it where they, uh, they've sheared the screw off like Nick did. And I just, yeah. I'll, I'll send them a bag full of screws. That is pretty cool, <laughs> though, that the fail safe is just a screw. He's yeah. lying. I didn't get a bag full of screws. I had to retap my entire knife. Well, <laughs> you didn't that was a challenge. See, my challenge was I made it stronger. <laughs> I retapped it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, it sort of has been an improvement all the way along, too. I think the revolution is more durable than the fire even would be. I know mine uh, fires hard. So the the yeah, revolution is the is the scale release, which is very confusing because the it's called yeah. the revolution and the wheel is called and the wheel. The wheel yeah. was the one with the actual wheel. Right. So it's all based. Well, it's on a the revolutionary same... mechanism. Is what yeah. The thing is. I wanted to kind of keep it within the wheel theme because it, they were all going to be wheels initially. Hmm. But I just I was never really really happy with the the trigger on the and... wheel. Yeah, and in the beginning, I had to lighten them up so far to, so people could fire them. Yeah, because I remember you brought the first. No, he brought the oh, first. Yeah. The first, first show he brought them to, they were a bit hard. Like even like for me, with like having a callus finger. finger. Yeah, I was like, these are. Yeah, so I was like, oh, this, is, this isn't going to go very far. No, the ones you know, the ones you were doing lately, like those are good. Yeah, the first ones, and you, you even say, I'm like, yeah, they're hard. I'm like, because I'm a maker with calloused fingers. I'm like. I don't. I could barely do this. Some guys are gonna be like, just gonna oh, pick yeah. it up and not figure it out and just put it down. I had to French the fuck out of them. <laughs> French them up a bit. <laughs> Hell yeah. Oh yeah, with those the V and Ds in the beginning, I spent years teaching Frenchmen how to fire a fire a double action auto. They're soft <laughs> like you literally just slide this to the side. I mean, I spend hours teaching people on the phone how to fire a Spyderco valve. Like, I, wow. they're just like, I don't understand. And I'm like, I don't know how else to tell you this. They're just not that panel move. Well, no, because they don't think the panel can move because there's a screw through it. Yeah, and they're yeah. like, oh no, it doesn't that's move. What makes it work. And I'm like, <laughs> no, that's just trust me, please, for, just trust me, it works. Push here. Yeah, they they don't get it. Yeah, so Matt, essentially, I want to build one somewhere to that lot and. Where it'd be a frame lock with a little slide. Mm-hmm. That, that's kind of what I, I want to build. And instead yeah. of having a second scale on the bottom, everything will be on the inside of the frame. I'll probably use a slitting saw to break the wall in between the two pockets. Yeah, I'd do them as a frame lock too. Yeah, that's pretty much the way I was going to set up a frame lock because I haven't really seen frame lock versions. Yeah, no. A frame lock dual action? Yeah, and that way, that oh. way you can do what like what I'm doing with uh, with the revolution in the wheels. I'm milling all these bosses on the inside of the handle, mm-hmm. and so my sear is not riding on screws or anything. It rides on these internal bosses that are milled into the the frame lock. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's why I was like these because the, those screws have to be custom made for uh-huh. the slide, but you could make little bosses to because. On yep. that mechanism, it's pretty much a spring wire that's bent, yep. and you have the little yep. bosses. You might to still need one screw, I think, but I think that one could be substituted with a properly pocketed hole for uh, just a normal flathead screw. Yeah, for where the bolster goes. I think that one could be supplemented in in the milling process. So we're like we're talking about we're we're talking about these mechanisms and and how to manufacture them and build them. Um, 
And uh, that that sort of leads into something I had wanted to bring up later. But I mean, Matt, you know, you, you kind of sort of softly mentioned it in the beginning. Um, but this this knowledge, I mean, do you feel like this knowledge is like part of like knife making? Uh, I mean, this is these are special techniques taught to one maker to another. But I mean, how many people, if any, have you taught the the ways of the dual action to? I mean, not just explain them at blade show, but I mean, properly taught them. Live by the sword, die by the sword. The, Ways um, of the steel. <laughs> so I, I recommend to those who are interested to buy in Amsterdam, take it apart. Yeah, that's what you told me two years ago. And then you go home, go buy one, and then, then okay. call All me right. when you have questions. Yeah. Except he didn't tell me they're sold out everywhere and discontinued. <laughs> you have to do. You have to so it took me about it. two years to find one. <laughs> and then he answered my questions. It's an asshole. <laughs> So I mean, so you... but I'm I'm certainly not not here to hold anything back from anyone that's genuinely interested. Okay. Um, but I mean, you've never had an apprentice, essentially. No. Okay. Not really. No. Nick, where you at? Come on. <laughs> I'd be happy. Well, to, um... I have a business to run. <laughs> I would love. I would love to. A lot I of was, this day is is this day and age is just programming, you know. Yeah, yeah. well, out, yeah. well, I have a CNC now. If I had like a CAD file, like I already figured it out when I yeah. took apart the Amsterdam. That first moment, I figured it out. Except the only problem was your Sierra is the the bent one. I was like, okay, I'm gonna have to get that made by a sheet metal shop. And then it's pretty what, easy to make if you're yeah. just making one of them. Well, yeah, you if know? you're making one, it's easy. You could get or you get a laser yeah. cut it's and bend about it. making seven. Okay, that's different. Or well, seven. Add like a zero. But, but, and then from there, you go to a stamping shop if you need to make 10,000 of them. Yeah, right. and I actually yeah. know one here, uh, pretty much right where I get my steel from. Yeah. But uh, that's one way to do it. But that works better for a line lock. For that frame lock one that I want to build, it'd have to pretty much be a Pac-Man sear. No, I, I use it. It's wide enough for frame lock. Yeah, but then the you, have to, you have to cage it, on, cage it on both sides. You're, you're doing it as a bolster lock, so at least the scale covers it. Hmm. Yeah, well, like I said, it's riding on the bosses. Mm-hmm. Internal bosses. Yeah, but like if you, you, you've seen like one of the Spider Covaladens, <coughs> right? What's that? The Spider Covaladen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I so know it, that Yeah, slide. so essentially it, everything is solid except that little half inch slide. So I want to build just a titanium frame lock. And all that's on there is that, ty- that little half-inch slide out of various materials. Yeah. So I mean, there's, the, whole, the whole mech is just under the show side scale. There's dual action frame locks out there to look at. Yeah, for sure. And isn't the... Uh, mm. uh, what's that buck one? There's that oh, one. Rep- that one has oh, a yeah, you just had one liner, uh, liner lock. The liner on the other side. Yeah. That's a, that's that's a neat little kind of, knife. Yeah. It's, it's, um, uh, kind of defeats not, the purpose of it. It's not concealed, a, though. It's the thing. It's a button. It's not, it's not, it's not very it's, secretive. Yeah, it's not it's as cool. Not. Oh. But I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's not designed to be, it's designed to be user-friendly. That's, you know, it's yeah. not meant to be a concealed. Well, because a lot of the things is, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Matt, but a lot of the knives that Bush was making, and a lot of these early makers were making, perhaps like Bill McHenry or whoever, they were making dual actions because of switchblade laws being the way they are. They were concealed release dual actions. Yeah. They weren't like, look at my knife and how cool it is. It was like, Hey, I have a fucking switchblade, and nobody knows but me. Is that Certainly incorrect? Played a huge factor in it. Yeah. <clears throat> um, wow. 
Side note, my yeah. mind is blown. Schrade makes an $18 dual action. Just saying. Just found it. Ordering one. Well, you know, the V&D was knocked off. Hmm. So you, you, you used yeah, to get that's... those for $9. As a dual action? Like a working dual oh, action? Yeah, yeah dude. V&Ds were like... G- oh, yeah. It's all stamped G- out, probably, yeah. G-Force, I think they were called. Hmm. G4. I'm, I'm Googling that. It was well, one of the better cool. sellers for a while. They did them in wood handles before we did. Yeah, they had it knocked off pretty early. I found it. It's called we, uh, on, on eBay. It's called G Force Auto Trick Knife. Fun, yeah. fun, 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 fun with reverse belt clip. <laughs> <laughs> I love you gotta fun. have that reverse belt clip, dude. If it doesn't so, have the reverse belt clip, then I don't want it. We, uh, Butch and I met with Tony. Um, I am kind of proud to say that I'm the one who kind of brought them back together. Hmm. Oh, uh, okay. After, wow. they, they kind of had some issues after uh, Tony did the chameleon. Right. Which was uh, he did two versions of it at two different periods. Mm-hmm. Um, so initially he did the chameleons and then they kind of had a falling out. And then uh, we kind of got back together and, and at one point uh, Microtech was going to do the V&D or a oh, similar wow. shape of it. Hmm. Been... And as, as soon as Tony released like that he was going to do it, it got knocked off. We weren't big enough to get knocked off by any means at that point. So that's how the G-Force came about. And they, they must have sold millions because it went on for 20 years and they're still selling them. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I never knew that. Wow. Yeah. So was that during the MSG or the no the MTX period MTX three the Chameleon was before it okay then then he did the MTX is it called there was two yeah. of them two of them that were actual bolster release the Chameleon that was in the nineties right yeah and that was so that's the real early was on yeah. the clip yeah that oh. was a clip release clip that release was uh... clip. wow mm-hmm. huh. and that was actually one of Butch's Butch had a production that. They were doing in his shop with his kids. They did hundreds of them. Yeah, I remember seeing, yeah, you could get custom chameleons from Bush. Custom chameleons. And then Timberline ended up taking that shape yeah. and running with that for a while. Um, and then and then Tony did a second iteration of the chameleon later on, maybe 10 years later. Was that a panel release? Uh, no, it was under the clip as well. It was a clip again. Okay. Yeah, and there were pro- there were some serious issues. Some issues with that, yeah. I mean, yeah, a lot of them came back, and you had to fix them. I mean, the dual the, the knives that were you know the knives that Matt makes or the knives that we're talking about are are some of certainly some of the hardest to make properly out there, and probably hardest to make in general because of the amount of of hand fitting, tuning, pressure, x yeah, time, cool. x like sitting closed forever, and then mm-hmm. getting fired once in a while. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, the the chameleon had had problems. And people tend, knife, people yeah. tend to use them pretty much until they break. Yeah. People yeah. sit around with switchblades and fire them until they fire explode. Around. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking <laughs> about. Explode. I that blade didn't take until them they fire the spring into their chest. Yeah. So you so, you were able to get you were able to get Tony and Butch back together though, or or you know on speaking well, terms. Yeah. Yeah, and now they're they're on friendly terms. You know, Butch has always really respected Tony a lot for what he's done, and me as well. That's awesome. Hmm. 
he's been a really good friend to me and I have nothing but respect for him. Even with, you know, all the conflicts that I've been in the middle of between Kershaw and Microtech and, you know, trying to stay neutral and, and be positive with all sides. Yeah, there you go. Matrix, Matrix. Yeah, let's get into a, a yeah. neutral discussion on that topic. Maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe <laughs> not. So, right, when now. did you? What? That's. I mean, that's a good one, though. I mean, how, when did you meet Tony? When did you guys? Did you cross paths at a show as fellow yeah. makers? Or it was, it was early on there. Uh, the first time I met him was a show in Eugene. Oh wow! Um, so the Eugene show used to be really spectacular. They had booths with all the production companies it was kind of like the uh, automatic show of the year hmm. everyone would come who made autos from mchenry on down even mel pardue was first place i met him he was making these uh solid damascus inlaid push button autos yep i'm familiar with those yeah, yeah. um so it was a great time. That was kind of my introduction. That was my first table was at that show with uh, Fishtail Daggers. And uh, Tony was there the first three or four that I went to. And this is pre-Halo. This is pre-OTF, anything. Um, These were like mini UMSs or pre-that? Yeah. Was UMS, then uh, Halo Ones was probably mm -hmm. he showed up with I think the second or third year that I was there. That was the big one, the big super powered, right? Um, the Kydex sheath. I mean, that must have been hyper tactical for the time, like a giant for that time, oh, yeah. rather large and, single action OTF. They were. They wasn't a double action. It was a single, oh, single action, action charge handle. The Halo. Halo one. Hmm. Halo one. Uh, CFO? No, this was. No, you're before, saying this is before, okay. Before all the halos, this was the very first one. Okay. And as far as I know, I mean, I, I could be wrong, but I I'm pretty sure that Tony got the idea from Butch's Viper, because the Viper preceded any of the single action out the fronts. Hmm. And the wow. Viper was a smaller version little squatter and had the charging handle that pulled from the back bolster to recharge it uh, i thought yeah we came across the viper two years ago which was the first <laughs> time i i had seen it and we had it in the shop okay. and we played around with it um i did not realize the dates were so i mean it must have been close in any way it was really close and uh i mean strangely enough i I have this memory of being down there at Butch's shop after the show with Tony and Grant and Gavin. Gavin was maybe 12 years old. Wow. Uh, That's incredible. Ken, Ken Onion was there. Man, heavy hitters. Ken Onion was showing us his speed safe mechanism. Wow. That's incredible. At that time. Yeah. Really? I mean, like thinking back on it, it's such an incredible moment in history. As far yeah, as, like yeah. it. No yeah, it's like a, the precipice of modern, yeah, like folders. Yeah, and there I am as a kid at that point. 
And so was was what was Butch? You guys were there to see Butch's stuff, or did she just speed safe? He, he used to have a barbecue after the, oh, okay. the show on Monday. That's awesome. And there'd be mm-hmm. there'd be gun, you know, automatic rifles and all kinds of stuff, fun hmm. stuff, shooting, little knife making, big barbecue. Sounds like a fun time. It was. Um. Question Matt, about those those Timberline Veladen signature mm-hmm. liner lock knives. Um, those aren't those those are like just the Chinese uh, production knife, right? Yeah. yeah like, what, what were those like sold for? Maybe forty retail. Okay, I just bought one on eBay for fourteen bucks. That was discontinued by TSA. I mean, yeah. well, that was uh, taken away by TSA. It's a T- oh, yeah? it was TSA auction. Yeah. <laughs> It's used, but it's a TSA auction on eBay. Yeah, <laughs> oh, it's, you're it's, talking uh, about one of the Timberline folders. Yeah, it's yeah. all items are, yeah. are sold and received by TSA right. and need cleaning, oiling, and resharpening. Right. That's hilarious. These, these were confiscated through the confiscation program. It was 14 bucks, so I'm buying it. It's got it. like an <laughs> injection molded handle. Uh, it looks like G10, like texture G10. Oh, it's. Oh, I think it's molded. Yeah. It's, well, I, I remember those. I'll know, in about, I'll know in about like, a week. It's yeah. it's good though. I mean, for the price at the time, it was a it you was. know. But yeah, definitely not a G10. Oh no! no. Um, so that that's pretty gnarly. Like an after show barbecue, just everybody yeah. like hanging out, trading yeah. trading what would be history. I didn't realize that that uh, that Grant and Gavin. Uh, yeah, they showed up. They didn't really know anybody at the time. They had uh, Grant had this giant mock up. Of one of their knives, it was about maybe 18 inches when it was open, but it was one that had like the cam mechanism with a slider mm-hmm. where you push on it and the whole blade flies open. But it was wow. a giant mock up of this, all these cams <laughs> working pretty That's cool. And so That's I've known Gavin a long time, kind of seen him grow up. And yeah, I think he mentioned that when we had dinner with him in Vegas, yeah. I think he mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a little brother to me in a way, hmm. which is pretty cool because he's he's a one of the very few people that does have a lot of original ideas. Yeah, like engineering ideas, engineering which is pretty incredible. Ideas. Yeah. yeah, like yeah. no one else I, I can think of that does what he does. No, his yeah. eyes are yeah. certainly unto himself. You know, yeah. and he's he's influencing others. I I would have to say that. The morphing karambit, you know. Oh yeah, some, oh some yeah, of for that sure. Task alive with within what the hawks were doing originally. Mm. Um. Yeah, without a doubt, probably. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure if you ask Joe, he probably admit to that. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, you know, they were doing a lot of that cam extension mm-hmm. stuff, and then yeah, uh, they did that one where you you hold the handle and it basically locks the blade in. Oh yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. So, like the uh, beetle I had those, or the, the turtle? The be- no, the beetle. Yeah, I had, the I had one of those. Yeah. The beetle, yeah. Hmm. So I was collecting. I was like, "Oh, this is New York legal. I'll get one of these." Right, yeah. New York legal. But then the problem with that knife was because the whole knife worked at a urethane O-ring. So if yeah. you just if you stored it in the close position for too long, the O-ring would wear out. Yeah. So it just no retention. Uh, Those guys made those themselves. 
the injection. Yeah, the injection. Well, and, and then that became a big issue. Uh, he made a post, and he, if you throw it, in, it was like you have to throw it in the oven for like at two seventy five or three hundred for like a half hour, and it'll in the spring will go back to its memory. Um, oh, ring will will go back to its memory. That worked. Huh. But like I didn't touch funny. it for like a year because I went and then I picked it up. I was like, oh, this is like a limp pick. It doesn't even. <laughs> it's it kind of like tilts downwards a little bit. Here's the fix. Throw it in the oven. Yeah, it wasn't vulcanized. I mean, <laughs> hey, you know, if it works, it works. Be vulcanized, like, oh, yeah. Quick at home, get so, it done. I think one thing we should talk about is the basically the history of switchblades. Okay. With the time period of like oh yeah for turn, sure turn of the century on up. So there was really two main schools. You got to call them schools because they had students and they were definite teachers. And that, you know, Butch was on the West Coast and he taught many people, including Bill and myself, his kids. And on the other end was Billy Mack, Bill McHenry. Right. And he led that definitely like a school. You would have his people, his friends come in and they would stay with him and shoot the shit and learn, make switchblades together. And beyond that, there were just small patches. So you had guys like Charlie Dake down in Louisiana, uh, Reese, definitely. And, and I'm talking like 2000 or mid-90s on up. Right. Um, small pockets. There was an old guy named Jim Martin who made little miniature switchblades really well. And a few people in between. But it was really sparse beyond that. Yeah, and, it wasn't a popular thing. No, no. And, and the whole East Coast side of it, the Bill McHenry side, they really got into the art knife stuff. Yeah, so uh, Ch- when Chuck was on, he was talking about that, talking a lot about art knife switchblades. Yeah, work, so Bill, Bill was a goldsmith initially. And if you looked at all of his knives, they were highly, you know, carved. Not just engraved, but carved. He would carve figurines on the backspacer and faces. And you, you'll see that with some of the, like Stephen Olszewski. Mm. He was a jeweler. I think Chuck talked about him. He, he really took it even further, the carving side. But they, they all kind of worked in the same mechanism for the most part, which was right. that latch release. And they would really decorate the latch. Oh, um, Richard Wright. That's what I thought. Richard sorry. Wright. Yeah. Another one, and they're all New Englanders for the most part. There was a guy named Bill Sandin who uh, lived up in New Hampshire. Um, John Richter, who is a master chief, uh, ex seal, wow. made him. Um, Rick Hinder as, a, as well was in this group. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. People. Yeah, hmm. made autos. And and those were that was his group of friends for sure. Um, guy named Rex Rex Robinson. So all these names that you guys are hearing, but they're right. all gone. Yeah. You know, no, nobody's heard of them because they basically backed themselves into this corner where they're they were decorating their knives to such a level that they were in the shit ten plus k range. In sales, and then the whole market dried up. Yeah, it was you know elderly art 
knife collectors that basically were soaking it all up. But it really disappeared, the market, as with many of these makers. And now you're, yeah, you're talking about like, right. So, I mean, there's also, I mean, there's, there's the, there's Osborne and Kaios in there, in there somewhere, oh, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's so the same were, idea as they they're super high end knives that just didn't have a, a place yeah. anymore. And Warren and Joe weren't specifically focused on the autos. Right. No. Them. Okay. That's, that's fair. Okay. And they did them exceptionally, you know, and there were other people like, uh, uh, Jack Levin. Okay. I don't know if, if he was from Brooklyn. He was an awesome maker. Oh, man. If you can, check out. Find his stuff. It was medieval dagger-ish with latch, like a uh, Hubertus latch release. Mm. Mm. Um, frame locks. Oh, yeah. Some extreme art knives. Yeah. yeah. Like high art, yeah. That's pretty neat. I just came across a Hubertus latch release this morning in a box. <laughs> Um, in a box, just laying around. Uh, yeah, we stopped. Yeah, they're around. Um, so okay. So then, what about the southern the southern set with um? What what about Rob? Where where is he landing there? Um, Rob Dalton. Dalton. You know he's been so Where's, reclusive the whole time. Is that is that a black knife conversation that we won't have right now? No, no. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's I'm fine. Sued, Jeremiah always oh, talks about Dalton. We'll, we'll, we'll have we'll have that conversation at some point. <laughs> You yeah. Like the that. Simpsons did it first. Uh, Jeremiah always comes back at me with Dalton did it first. I'm like, God, I don't know. <laughs> Dalton did it first. I mean, his, his whole business was based off knockoffs initially. He knocked off the Halo one. So you're uh, saying that, and what I'm okay, hearing yeah, is see, the opposite. On so you're saying that you're saying that Rob knocked off the Halo one, not that oh, the fuck yeah, that black, not that the Ranger came people. first. Hmm. The rain. No, it was, this was right after Tony came out with the Halo one. It was the exact okay. same shape, exact same. I mean, it was shittier. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, I think his first like uh, thing that he really came up with was the uh, the pull pull release uh, single action out the front, where the the tabs on the side of the blade, like uh, Protex, done one like that. Oh, the Border Patrol. I don't know the names of his. Or the, it was a border patrol, or it was an asp. But yeah, that's yeah. what you're. Yeah. Uh, so you've got that. You've got his button lock work that he's done. The side opening autos. Yeah. Oh, the um, Protex catalog. Um. But I've yeah. never met him. I don't know that of anybody who has. I can sure. We tried to find him, and uh, that didn't happen. That didn't really. Too well. Yeah. In Lexington, when we were there, we tried to see if that could work out, and yeah, it didn't happen. So, hmm. so it's very reclusive, I would say. Very reclusive, and then the fact that he's been willing to just blatantly knock some stuff off. Never right. really gave him much credit. Hmm. All right, fair enough. Except, um, except they were a good bargain. If you wanted a, a Microtech, there was usually a Dalton alternative. There you go. Uh, what, so, what? Where do you where do you stand on the development of the Black Knife then? The Black Knife. Well, that goes back to Miller. Who was it? Miller and guys in Florida. I don't right. know the whole history of it. But yeah, they are the ones that invented a push-button lock, as far as I know. Cool, yeah, coil-fired side-opening push-button coil release auto. Wait, push I missed button. that. Who, who, who did the push-button? Ah, his name was Miller. Uh, hmm. 
I don't know the whole history of it. I think they were from Florida. It was a team, and then Charlie Ox knew him, and then that's how he got the the Ox. Yeah. The whole any any relation to Eric Oaks by any chance? Well, maybe because Eric's dad was like a master smith, wasn't he? Well, I I heard that, but I. I don't know. I have to ask Eric because this can't is this is one of those this is one of those fun stories that I've heard a, a couple different sides of. Yeah, so I'll be it's, interested it's like to... playing telephone almost. Yeah. Is it? I mean, it's one of those. They're so different. Those two. the way the way that I hear the story is is different. But then we'll, we'll have Reese on at some point, and and I think that it would be cool to have all of those sides of the stories. Um, yeah, Reese would know. Uh, Aren't we doing Reese next? Yeah, we will. But I want to talk about Matt now. But he I mean, definitely yeah, definitely know the black knife. He definitely he he talks a lot about that early early coil fired work. How, how do I Google that though? I just look up the black knife. Good luck. There's like fifty thousand different blade forms articles yeah. screaming about different people. But yeah, it's the most talked about thing ever, <laughs> pretty much. So this so but but going back to what Matt started with the with the 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 early early switchblade history and the makers. I mean, I think he was definitely, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's never been the popularity of a folding knife or a frame lock. It's always been um yeah like an alternative like yeah like the terribles kind of thing kind of well i mean they, they used to be fairly illegal right yeah that's that's really been laxed relaxed a lot but um huh. when i first started there were maybe four states i think you could own them in. and now and it's we're, always been rhode island now we're right? up like 30 yeah all over the place. Rhode Island staying strong. Shout out to Knife Rights. Yeah, right there you go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Sure. Shout out to Knife Rights. Yeah, yeah Doug Ritter. Yeah, he's he's in there. He's in there killing it, man. Single handedly, pretty much. I mean, not entirely, but compared to the money that Acti has raised over the right. years, he's gotten so much more legislature through. No, no, Doug is. I yeah, Doug's great. See him at all the shows. Try to give him as much money as we can. We can fling out there. Um, yeah. So, so how, many, how much interaction have, have you... I don't, I don't know where you're going with your Switchblade history, but I want to continue on that path. I found it quite interesting, but... Uh, yeah. These, there's, there's these different schools, you were saying. Yeah. So I came from the West Coast side right. with Butch and pretty much just learned double actions, anything that Butch was teaching. There was also... Uh, well, before I started, Mike Whiskers. Right, whisper. Yeah, the Allen. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So he, he was in Texas, and he did a basically a lockback that was double notched on the tang, so it would lock closed and open, and you just it was a a scale release, uh, single action, and so he he taught quite a few Texans how to do those. So that was hmm. another small school of people that came out of there. Even I believe Johnny Stout has made one or two from the same area there. Oh, is that right? So I just I find it interesting that we had these regional areas that stuck to the same mechanisms and similar knives, um, and it, it only went for a, a certain period of time in history, and it's certainly not like that anymore. Right. There aren't. Uh, I mean, maybe oh, with, with flippers, you can kind of see that where similar stuff, whether you're, you know, near Tom Mayo, you're going to make Mayo-ish looking stuff or, you know, 
Jeremy mm. Marsh, some of his students kind of, you know, some of their stuff looks similar. So you, know, you can't help mm-hmm. it. Yeah, that's I mean, a, you're influenced by thing. somebody. Yeah, that's the one thing I was thought about, like, early on, should I kind of apprentice with somebody on design principles or not? Mm-hmm. But then I thought, like, oh, well, I'm just, my stuff's just going to look like their stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're a straight yeah. designer. You should be doing your, like, you should have your own stuff. When yeah. you're taught by someone and taught their processes. Yeah. Uh, just pick it, up their process, yeah. Yeah, so that image just kind of, that, that design hard. philosophy kind of stays in your head. It's really mm. hard. You've established definitely your own style, Elijah, and you're probably yeah I, the most I successful tried. single designer. I mean, as far as Whoa. someone who hasn't gone on to make knives, well, yeah. that's a that's a rep to live up to. Yeah, that's some serious. <laughs> you, you think about uh, it. Yeah, I mean, yeah I'm gonna call Leon, man. Well, <laughs> Leon just just uh, got angry. No, <laughs> certainly on the the production side, and and right. Most recently, you, you didn't do all the collabs that Leon's done with custom makers, but I tried. You're uh, you're touching different companies, you know, and uh, they're finding great success with what they're doing with you. And hopefully, it continues. It, it's uh, it's your own style. Whereas you got a guy like um, JVO, his stuff. Mm-hmm. I think that's more generalized. I think he has one of the most like recognizable styles it's today a nice, because it's a nice style, but I think a well, lot of his it, lines because he like, sticks to the same concept of like a recurve canto. Yeah, so I have definitely I, gotten a rut like that where I want to design like just derivatives of the same design, which is very hard to to shake, for mm-hmm. sure. It's hard to take yeah. those jumps to the left. Yeah, really I've been I've been in that rut for about eight years now. Everything I made, design ends up being a oh well, I want to grind like a tanto, so I'll just make another tanto, or but then or again, vice versa with the Warren Cliff. Yeah, like on the other hand, if you do that and continue to do it, you're basically going to have the best version of that knife that you can make eventually. Mm-hmm. But that's all I you guess have. That's true. Yeah, yeah that's all. Yeah, you that's, have. That's developing. The thing. I figured that out, but like that's why I talked to you last week, where I'm like, can you design something else for me? That I could make with my father, because everything I make just turns to be a Tanto or a Warrencliffe, <laughs> which, like Warrencliffe's people think are a simple grind. If you want to grind a Warrencliffe to be crisp and straight, it is not a simple grind. No, a simple no. grind is just a normal, like, draw point hunter with a little bit of a high belly. That's a simple grind. Yeah. yeah. Just do the opposite from what you did previously, like with the, uh, the Swayback. I was like, I wanted to design a Swayback, so I did the Pleroma. But, yeah. It's got to. I don't know, like a concept. Oh, a Tonto, like a clip point, like a Bowie, you know. Yeah. That's kind of how I think about it. Like, just a certain blade shape or a style of knife, and then just go off that and just kind of make it your own. Mm-hmm. And once, once you're stuck with your style, it uh, it definitely influences everything you end up doing. Oh, yeah. it's Yeah, it's pretty much the rule book that you kind of have yeah. to follow. So what's it's the really- current... What's the current state of affairs, Matt, in your in your opinion? I mean, not of the market, but I mean, like we're talking about these different schools of switchblade makers or or whatever. But like, I see. Uh, like just aren't as many of them. Obviously, we've seen a lot of stagnation in framework flippers. Right. Um, we don't even need to really get into that, but uh, so there's going to be a need for you know. Something else, something new, something more. If everyone wants to survive making knives, it's, um, 
I mean, you I know, definitely goes... see a resurgence of autos. I see more things with springs in them yeah. all mm-hmm. the time. Yeah. And you and see I... even a, a resurgence of forging these days. Yeah. Right, the uh, sole authorship piece. Yeah. And well, I think... it, it, it's going to take, you know, maybe some new skills, some yeah. additional learning. Well, uh, CNC is the thing that's starting to step up where yeah. a, lot a lot of guys of now are having access to that. And, I think uh, one thing that's kind of made like Canine the Speed Safe so popular is because the quote unquote casuals, uh, non knife people, when they get into knives, it's usually a lot of times through one of his designs through Kershaw or something. Mm-hmm. And it's like the mechanism is so simple. Like it's just an easy to actuate mechanism because yeah. they don't really care about the mech getting into it to start off with. So like they just want something that's easy to use. And it feels and, like a switchblade. And that, that was it. So like, I don't know. It seems like that was the main reason of that popularity. That yeah, I think it's going to kind of come around full circle and, and be something similar eventually. We've seen a, a lot higher educated consumers. Yeah. Oh yeah, they know about way more stuff than they. Way there's yeah. so easy to get information these days, mm-hmm. good and bad. Well, and plus so... the the community is more self aware than I think it's ever been. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this this what we're doing right now is a pretty good example of that but you know yeah. I'm saying that as you mentioned like he knowledge. was part of schools and back then especially the forges were very guarded with their secrets yeah. uh you that's and that was another reason why people's knives started to look similar is because you were your knives looked like the teacher who taught you because mm-hmm. that's usually how you got into the hobby there weren't really many people who just oh i'm gonna look at a youtube video and figure this out in my garage yeah with right. the tools yeah. that i have yeah, everything becomes a melting there. pot yeah like even matt he was taken under the the Veladin's wing and they showed him how to do things right but yeah. now it's you you could ask a maker and he'll tell you or you could find the info online and just mm-hmm. because it's just assumed that someone's going to tell you their process if they don't uh you think they're an asshole yeah and most likely there's a video online to show you how to do it it's it's much easier than you know yeah like the thing with cnc it's being more acceptable because there's information like i i literally from knowing 2d cad and nothing i was fairly good on a manual mill figuring out setups and processes on it mm-hmm. but like i knew nothing about cnc or cam or 3d yeah. and yeah. Like, nine months later i had a cnc in my shop and two weeks after that i had a knife off the machine mm. yeah and when, just when you're online. just a conventional machinist, you don't know chip loads or. I still don't. It's been four years. I still don't know. I, I still don't know what chip load means. <laughs> no. No, I know what it means. I don't know. How to I know. think you do. If you got I, your feeds, if you got your, understand your feed rates. Yeah, but I, I don't know how to measure load. it by chip load. Like I'll measure the th- 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 like people measure the thickness of their chips and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, I don't know how to do that. I just inch per minute, like uh, RPM, and like. And That's I figure nice out. with with today's CAM programs. You really. Yeah, like when, like whenever I call for some speeds and feeds, and they're talking about SFMs, I'm like, can you give me that in RPMs and IPMs? <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a pretty easy formula. Yeah, well, now I know the formula. I keep it posted everywhere because yeah. they'll, they'll always give you SFMs. Yeah, and I'm like, I don't know how. To, I don't know what that means. Um, but now I have the formula, so I translate it. Got to convert it over. Huh. Yeah, because yeah. they'll usually give you SFMs, which is like. Uh, surface yeah, speed per minute, speed. and then they'll give you the chip load. So it's like mm. they'll give yeah, you that, yeah. and then how thick the chip would be. Yeah, but that's, that's not really the info I need. Yeah, that's 
And you have to do the, yeah. Then you have to use formulas and plug stuff in together and figure out what you actually. Yeah, and once you get your RPM and your SFM, you can get your basically your feed rate yeah. based on the, the, ma- amount the, the mathematicals. It's based on the amount of flutes on your cutting tool. Yeah, it, it's also it's essentially that math you used to do in school that used to be like uh, <laughs> find find x, and you're like, why is there fucking letters in math? And now now I have to do that math. Hmm. Well, um, so we got the we got the revolution and we got the wheel, which were the the two more recent models that you were that you were making a lot of. Yeah, or, or you know a lot of for at least you know, for like the last what, four years. Yeah, or since about, making the fire, I've been done about a hundred of them since the fire. Okay, and I have a I have a hundred blades. Um. That are ground and polished. Oh, and interesting. Seventy-five of them are at the DLC coder right now. Hell yeah! Hmm. So DLC. So those, I just had you... some stuff test DLC. You know, and then, come out the best. I got, are you bringing that to Blade Show this year? Yeah, I got twenty handles, twenty clips, oh, wow. and they'll have so it'll be all blacked out. Nice. Um, that sounds awesome. Yeah, that's. I'm putting my name you're, in the hat. For you're still at yeah. that. You're still at that center booth thing terminal oh yeah we got our big booth um you guys are actually like just right across the aisle from uh we knives are you guys taking like accepting people (laughs) i'd love to be part of that that (laughs) (laughs) do you yeah do you let people into your into your booth circle (laughs) not really pretty og it's a great spot it's a good location this year we have brian fellholter he's taking the spot that jeremy marsh was in they're moving up to his booth. Oh, Brian Jeremy's Jeremy's not going to be there anymore. Jeremy and Bill Burke are moving into Brian's old booth, which is just oh, okay. up the road, yeah. like three booths. So yeah. it's, Brian's is going to be sharing the showcase with me up front, and we got Chad Nichols and uh, Nottingham Bubba, who also makes pens, mm-hmm. and then in the other corner we got Steve Kelly. The tie connector and George Palladonia with hmm. AMX American Metal Exchange. So with that and the carbon fiber, it's kind of a, a good place to buy supplies. And the front showcases are going to have Brian's pens, and I got some really neat stuff planned. Anything I, you want to uh, tip us off on? Yeah, I'll do it. I uh, Kershaw was kind enough to sell me. Uh, 150 launch eights. Oh, put one in oh. on one of them. The and so one. that that's your newest model. I don't. People are probably yep. slightly familiar with it, but um, yeah, it's just come out. It's okay. only been really. It was released at Shot Show, but they've. I can't now, get any. They've now shipped their second batch, and it was okay. pre-sold. Both batches were just oh, pre-orders. Right. Um, so the ones I'm getting, I asked for them without inlays. And I've got seven different materials that I'm going to cut inlays for. Mm-hmm. Nice. And now, do you still also... have a CNC set up? Definitely going to need one of those. Yeah, I do. Now, I what machine do you have at the shop? And they're both small. I've got an Emco, which is a 30 taper, 10 tool changer. It's made in Austria. Mm-hmm. And then I've got one sitting in my living room that's uh, made by Intellitech. It's uh, without a tool changer. Intellitech. 
and it's it's made by a company in New Hampshire that makes them for basically for universities. They're a teaching tool for teaching code. Hmm. I've never heard of those. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta... And it's about 300 pounds, size of a microwave oven, and uh, pretty stable. It's like a mini mill. No, much smaller. It doesn't have a base. Hmm. What? And uh, I made all the fires on that. Oh, wow. Uh, all the wheels hmm. without a tool changer. What? How is that even possible? A lot Did of mounting. A lot of mounting. Back and Physical forth. labor. And so that's what you cut the inlays for these these special Blade Show launches on. I'm going to oh. cut them on this because it's a single lot. I've seen these okay. before, but I've never heard of anyone owning one. Yeah. Had it for a long time. Is that laid worth it? <laughs> What's that? That laid they make. Oh, no. I mean, <laughs> like I said, it's a teaching tool. This has a cast granite base, L shaped base that's like a granite composite. Mm-hmm. So it's got a lot of density to it. So the tell but us tell small. us a little bit about the about the launch eight and the and the so style. Launch eights, they're going to be uh, custom marked Blade Show 2019 with my logo on the back, and uh, different inlays. I've got uh, marble carbon fiber. I got lightning strike. I got uh, ivory G10. I got some abalone, Ooh. and then I just guess real or that or that laminated stuff. Yeah, laminated stuff. I hate it. You can't. It's only forty thou thick. This inlay. Yeah, I know. Yeah, pretty, I, have some, I, bought, I bought a bunch of laminated stuff at Blade Show, and like I just yeah. can't bring myself to use it because yeah. you see wherever they shove the pieces together, the lines or the you pattern really changes. Can. Yeah, I don't know. Tony's using it on his stuff. Seems to work. Yeah, I mean it's it gets the point of of the yeah. material across. So people collectors collectors do like it. It's it's a it's a great look. Yeah, and then I just got yesterday uh, a package from uh, what the hell? Fat Carbon. Oh, oh yeah, we got some of that oh, coming. Yeah. yeah, I got Julius, a big ass. I got a big ass package coming out of that stuff. Is uh, seems like a pretty cool guy. He's from uh, Lithuania. Yep. Some pretty pretty good looking matchrels, that's for sure. Really, I pretty good. much got everything that's he's a, making right now. That's a pretty good. He goes by Fat Carbon. If you ever saw his name, what's is his it, name? Is he a big dude. <laughs> oh, well, let me. See. Ah, no, it's just it's a. What is it? Ovidius Juicius. Oh, <laughs> no shit. Nice, nice. That's, that's pretty, pretty, uh, 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 Is he a cast dude. member in Norbert? <laughs> Norbert. <laughs> Lithuanian. He probably plays hockey. Right. Juicius. Juicius. Wow, that's worth changing your name to that. Uh, he needs a nickname. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that's something a little bit shorter. Oh, so you're okay. wow. Awesome. So you're actually bringing some serious heat to Blade Show this year. Like between the between the special edition launch aids, yeah. having some revolutions and repping um, the Fibersmith. Like, yeah. It's it's going to be a pretty pretty big year for you. Matt's and always got, got a, a big show. Come on. I got my Riot project that I'm hoping comes. I should have something by then. You know, I think I oh, remember. Yeah, we didn't even. That. Yeah. Yeah. So the David's making me a uh, integral flipper. That's gonna be mm. cool. 
some of them with inlays. Um, yeah, it's a nice size. It's like Sabenza size. And that's an OEM project, so that'll be your logo. Yeah, it's my okay. logo. Uh, not going to do very many of them. hundred of each. Oh, wow. So it's going to be very kind of limited. limited. Hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. Looking forward to it. He's... I don't know that I could get it made here in the United States, the work that he's doing. Right. As much as it pains me to say that. I mean, you could. Very impressive. It would yeah. cost. It would be unfeasible cost-wise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it and still a dual action that you're modifying? or No, because it's integral. I can't even get oh, it. Oh, I, 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 didn't, I didn't hear that part. Yeah. Okay. No. Oh, wait, did you show There's me? There's a challenge. Is it, did you show Yeah. Me? Okay. I showed you I, uh, I the first samples. And yeah. it's, I've changed a lot since then. But it, it's yeah, basically seen that, yeah. That's pretty cool. Pretty awesome, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so it's, it's a giant year for you. All right. Yeah, it should be a great show. What's... Um, I mean, since since you mentioned it, I don't know if you can, but what's what's the timeline on the on the Riyadh project? What are we looking at? End of the year for that, or you're talking about delivery Plus we soon? We have some by Blade Show. I don't know though. Oh wow. Okay. He's got a lot on his plate. Yeah. Um, so. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you've got you've got projects in the work. Is there is there any other uh, any other awesome disc and projects that we should be keeping our eye open for? That pretty much covers knife wise. Gotcha. In the meantime, right, that's, so, that's, in, that's intense. I, I have other stuff in the works, obviously. But... Right. Anything uh, watch related or anything like that? Oh yeah, uh, I was, yeah. <laughs> I, I would like to make some more bracelets. That would be awesome. I have oh. a uh, a bracelet for my Vacheron overseas that's almost done. Oh wow. Um. That is a little bit sacrilegious, uh, customizing a Vacheron, but. I know. That's pretty cool. It is. So it'll be an all Damascus bracelet. Oh, well, that makes... Yeah, that makes Um, sense. Initially, I had intended to make the case and do the whole bit. Wow. But I don't know that I'm ever going to do that. So I think I'm just going to mount it on my Vashram. So, yeah, the bracelets are fun. The one you made in uh, Timascus for your Panerai right, is yeah, definitely that, pretty awesome. Yeah. That was yeah. Nice. Uh, I, I like the, the Damascus one you made. Damascus one, Timascus seems a little fruity. That much of it on a, on a wrist, all the colors. Yeah, doesn't uh, doesn't Svi own one of your bracelets that you made? He does. Yeah. Which is, that's pretty cool. Did you make more than the three that you had that time? I've made four so far. Oh wow. Two of the two Damascus, uh, three Damascus, and then one Damascus. And then I got Mokume parts in the jig borer right now, but they've just been sitting idle for a couple weeks. Now, now, question about the jig, because I'm working on something that's copper and brass, and like I'm worried about staining the uh, like clothes green. Now, won't that stain your mm, wrist green, funny. being that it's copper? I think it will. I, my my plan was kind of to uh, maybe electroplate the inside, gold, or something like that. Just the or, inside. The yeah, that? just on oh, the you can mask it. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know how you like line a, mm-hmm. a ring. I was planning on probably doing like a urethane dip or some sort of thin clear coating. Yeah. Spray yeah, or something. Know, even a. Uh, you can get clear coat powder coat. That would work. Mm-hmm. Oh, there you go. 
Yeah, just blast clear, the underside. A, a clear Cerakote. Yeah. Yeah, because the product that I want to make, I'm afraid that once the cotton patina is, it's going to ruin the clothing. Yeah. A lot of people are really sensitive to that shit. Mm. Acidic. Yeah, those bracelets yeah. are bonkers. Yeah. Never something I intended to do commercially. Um, there's a guy who's got a new one out, Co Co Designs. Oh, I've seen that. He does the fat carbon bracelet. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, oh, that's very cool. I really like the jigsaw like flavor to it. Yeah, he's got his own link that he's making mm-hmm. now and mixing and matching materials. It's pretty cool. He's making his own clasp even. Yeah, I designed a bracelet back in the day, but I couldn't figure out a good way to make a clasp. So mm-hmm. I never really pursued it. And then the clasp that I came up with was like pretty much all based on water jet tolerances. Yeah. So it's kind of like a C frame, like a C thing that'll snap onto a pivot pin, essentially. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know how I never really pursued it. It was like a big beefy titanium bracelet, kind of like um the whole Mac bracelet. <laughs> but I was inspired by um Starling uh, is it Starling Gear or Steel yeah, Flame? Steel Flame. They make one almost also similar to that. But that's the links. Yeah, oh, so okay. I was inspired by that one. But this was yeah. like six, seven years ago when I first started making knives. I, I gave up on clasps. I just I try and find used Panerai ones or used decent ones that I can, you know, that aren't too much money. There's still usually a couple hundred bucks to buy the clasp. To continue on with watches, uh, what do you got in the collection that that uh, is pretty cool? Yeah. Anything? Anything vintage? Not really too old. Oldest watch is a fake Rolex. Nice. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that I got that's, when I was like six years old. Um, no, I got a couple Panerais and two Vacheron overseas. Yeah, those uh, Vacherons are pretty awesome. I've seen one in person. It's my favorite. Uh, yeah, the one you have. Yeah, it's my favorite of that sporting group of the, uh, you know, the AP uh, Royal Oak or the. Uh, yeah, the Holy Trinity. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, Patek, Vacheron, and uh, AP. Yeah, Paddock's, Paddock's got their uh, all stainless steel one. Yeah. Uh, I can't think of it, but yeah, and Vacheron's been my. I don't like the newer one. They, they just redid it. And I don't like it. I like the the middle-aged overseas model. It's my favorite yeah. one. Yeah, a lot of those are kind of uh, considered, I guess you could say, old man's watches. But, yeah. Uh, some of them are more like contemporary stuff, but yeah, I mean, it's still one of the uh, best watch manufacturers in the world, I think. So, yeah, they are yeah. top notch. Yeah. I mean, anything that's been around that long and continues to be made is, you know, oh, yeah, it's for a reason. Yeah, people still appreciate it, people still buy it, you know. And what else? I got an old blacked out sub, not old vintage, but. What's the reference number on that? You might have a gold mine. It's not. He'd probably. Uh, well, Massachusetts, he'd he'd know at this point if he had a gold mine. <laughs> I know where my gold mine gold mines lie. Yeah, Matt doesn't yeah. just have like gold mines sitting around. He, he it's all accounted for. Like oh, I just I didn't realize that was that until that podcast, and then I just looked at my Rolex. Obviously, that's... <laughs> whoops. Yeah. Oh man, Jugs. 
Uh, what else? I just oh, I, I yesterday I I found a sub no date, uh, nineteen ninety four. The price is so good, but like it's just such a bad timing. Yeah, so uh, big purchases like that. that. That's my birthday. Never good timing. Yeah, it was ninety four. Yeah, no, it's just in the market gotta, for an excellent deal. No, you gotta send me the link to that. Fuck you. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm hopefully it. it's around long well, enough to where it becomes a good time. I'm just gonna go ahead and buy that. Yeah, it's amazing. Rolex was value and popularity. Oh, it's insane. It is. Yeah. Because I mean, it, I think have... it all kicked yeah. off with the uh, Paul Newman going for like eighteen million dollars. Well, yeah, and the, nobody wanted them initially, but they're just the way oh, that yeah. they are one of the or the most prolific of all of the high-end watchmakers. Well, it yeah. became the watch back in the day where it's like, yeah, you're 40 yeah, years was, old and successful. It's what you bought. Yeah, it was the, the thing to achieve. And what most people don't realize is. is like Timex is an older brand, which is just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It is crazy. Huh. Well. Yeah. They've been very successful in the like very short time. Mm-hmm. Well, that's crazy. So is there any, is there anything else we missed on? We talk. We didn't really talk about Fiber Smith, but you'll see. Yeah. You'll see Matt at Blade Show. He'll have his, yeah. uh, yeah. carbon, carbon fiber. fibers. Come to Blade Show, people. That's a whole other story. Where I, I stumbled on hundred thousand pounds of pre-prayed carbon fiber. Just stumbled upon it. It was just right there. It was just kicking around. <laughs> it kind of was. It's. Uh, we need to go into that story, maybe. This giant warehouse full of stuffs. I yeah. uh, when I first moved up. Back up to Seattle, there was this place called Boeing Surplus Supply. It was a giant store that was basically the garbage can for Boeing. I wish they still let casuals in there. Well, they don't, it doesn't even exist anymore. They have a little website. The, they yeah, they have one in California, but like hmm. they used to let people in, same yeah. as that one. But now and you need this, special licenses, and uh, I want this, them to go. This compared to the one in, in Long Beach, it, this was like 20 times the size. Well, mm-hmm. that's what that yeah. one was massive. And it was, you know, there's there's four airports here, and three of them are owned by Boeing. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. And so the 747, the 737, all the composite shit with the 57 and the 777, it's all made within like a 40 mile radius of downtown Seattle. Mm. Mm. And they're the biggest employer in the area. One of the major anchors for the economy, Puget Sound. Um, So basically they had the store there and I used to go and get titanium for other knife makers and Early on, that's how I met a lot of people like Mel Pardue and stuff. I was selling them titanium. And uh, this is before Chuck at Alpha Knife. He was actually working at Boeing at the time. And I used to see him down there. And he was just in the beginning of starting Alpha Knife Supply. By buying titanium down there. So initially, I I ended up uh, buying a couple rolls of I, I didn't even know what it was. I thought it was Kevlar. And it turned out to be dry fabric, carbon fiber. So I found some guy down in Portland, laid up, laid it all up for me in sheets, and I was able to sell it. And I, I went to the store so much that I got pretty friendly with the guy who was in charge of it, Reclamation. And he 
he kind of steered me that they were going to get to a point where they had to release all of the carbon fiber from the the Dreamliner, the triple, the 787. Mm. It had gone, the production had gone over by four years because they had all these supplier problems. They had pre-purchased all this pre-printing that went out of date on them. For aircraft, it's got, it has to be used up within a certain amount of time or else it's no longer certified to fly. So they had literally 700,000 pounds to get rid of. Damn. And not all of it was uh, woven. Most of it's, most of the planes are made up with unidirectional and like a quasi ISO layup or a zero ninety layup. Hmm. And then uh, the, the wait, woven, in layman's terms, a quasi ISO <laughs> just means that there's a 45 degree angle every other sheet. So zero okay. ninety okay. Is, is what it sounds like. Just one way, then turn turn ninety degrees the other way. Mm-hmm. The quasi's got forty fives in between, so it makes it a little stronger. So the whole the, the seven eight seven, the entire fuselage is made of wound carbon fiber. The wing structure is all carbon fiber. The empennage, which is the tail section, is. Uh, that's all made out of uni on the 757, the 777, and the 787. Mm. Well, I would also, imagine that was all aluminum, not carbon nope. fiber. It's wow. all solid carbon fiber and has wow. been for, for a long time, maybe 40 years now. Wow. See, I always thought it wasn't, I always thought it was like, gee, like a normal fiberglass uh, material. Nope. Solid carbon and then machined. Wow into blocks the empennage anyways the the fuselage which is the you know what that is that's the whole tube part of the airplane it's like the belly right or the whole the whole the, the tube, tube you're saying the whole, the okay tube. the sausage shaped hmm. tube um on the 787 mm, which is the first plane they used on it it's wound with half inch tape with these tape winding machines that wrap it around and wrap it around it's all one strand and uh Interwoven, then they they run the whole fuselage into a giant autoclave to cure. Oh my god! This is some like serious shit right here. Football field and a half, you know, one of the world's. And uh, so, anyways, they they had all this material that they basically had to throw away. Mm -hmm. And I was steered towards a way to purchase what I needed. I ended up with uh, oh, like hundred pallets, roughly, here and there, and I I had to figure out what to do with it because it it's not an easy material to process. It's not just like uh, regular carbon fiber; you squirt some juice on it. It's it's a high temperature prepreg, and it it takes a lot of pressure and uh, uh, high temperature to cure it. Which is beneficial because it stays pretty stable. Mm. Some of my materials, like twelve years old, and it still cures up just fine. But mm. it's got to remain frozen. So this whole time, I've maintained a giant space at a cold storage facility with this all entire time fiber. fiber. Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, when you go to cure it, it's frozen. You let it thaw a little bit. You unroll it. And you layer it up. 
and then you cure it either in an autoclave or a big press. Mm. And uh, so I, I found uh, a guy who actually makes the presses and instead of buying one, which I probably should have done initially, um, although they're a couple hundred grand, he's just basically uh, been able to lay up the panels as I've needed for me. And I've got a couple guys that will lay up panels for me. And for curve for curved stuff, there's a couple autoclaves that I use. Mm-hmm. So I now, what do you mean by curved stuff? Uh, uh, do some uh, helicopter parts. Uh, I got you. And, uh, you know, anything that has a curve. Flat panels can be done on the press or angle. We can do angles too. Mm. But anything with multiple curves has to be autoclaved. You look oh. And uh, so basically, that's how Fibersmith got formed. I have all this material. And... So you're still working off the same stuff. So you're until you, yeah. you know, like once you sell out, you're pretty much out. Pretty much. It's not going to become available again. Uh, I ran out of uni. I, I had 20 pallets of uni, and I sold it all back to a company, basically, that was, it was Boeing at one point that I sold it back to. Hmm. Um, but it, it turned it out to comes be... Around. Yeah. <laughs> funny enough. Did you have like that in negotiations? Like, we know what you paid for this. <laughs> no, they weren't. There was one day... <laughs> And there's been several auctions through the years that I've won since. And there was one day where I got a purchase order from Boeing and bought 10 pallets of prepreg that I sold right back to them the same day. (laughs) What? Now that is some hustling right there. Well, it's such a big company that, like, they don't even know what's going on on the other end. One end needs to place the order and the other side needs to sell. Yeah. Reclamation does not get in contact with purchasing. So, wow, man, that's so awesome. Idea. That is baller, dude. <laughs> that's yeah, nuts. That's so, crazy right there. Got wow. to charge him 10 times what I paid for it. Mm. That's literally free money. Pretty much. Yeah. So, no, free money is some of his other businesses. Yeah. That first time. <laughs> <laughs> so I've gone through a good portion. I got uh, 45 pallets left. So it'll probably last me another 10 years. Wow. And uh, yeah, that's how Fibersmith came about. The marble carbon fiber was, it's not done on a press. It's just made with uh, an infusion table with what's called toe, chopped toe, which is strands of it. And then lay that up basically in a mold. And then uh, it's, it's got this real topographic surface after it's laid up and then it's flat sanded from there it's hmm. kind of like uh, a, a, so i always thought it was run through like, like a time like a bunch of end cuts essentially i just kind of smeared no, it together it's a, it's a dry fabric but it's just like strands of it so it's just like laid at random like crisscrossing or, or... You just you grab a handful and you throw it down gotcha okay it's dry oh. it's done dry so infusions basically are done under a vacuum and they call them vacuum bag, but it's really just a flat, flat piece of plastic. And then you use this uh, sticky tape around the edges to seal it all mm. together. And then you run a vacuum and you pull from one end, you pull a vacuum. The other end is your inlet for your resin. So you're basically, 
injecting resin from one end and it goes across and it soaks through and saturates the entire part being sucked by the vacuum. And then once it gets to the other side, you're done with the infusion, you seal it off and let it cure. It's, it's, it's how a lot of people are making carbon fiber these days mm-hmm. and parts. It's really the easiest way to do it. So, like, I have a, I have a piece of carbon fiber that we bought from you at uh, TKI probably, like, two or three years ago. Yeah. And I think that's, that's Marvel that, that Josh bought yeah. from you. Yeah. So that's exactly what you're talking about that's right what that now. Is. Okay. Which is Boeing in, carbon no, fiber. No. No, okay. it's not bony. Oh. It's just okay. purchased chop toe, which is just okay. random fibers. So it doesn't have anywhere near the stuff I get from Boeing is is the best carbon fiber money can buy. Right. Uh, it's the T eight hundred, which is a very high strength. Um, the resin itself is reinforced with rubber. Hmm. Uh, so it, it's it's bomber stuff, and the the marble's strictly you know, aesthetic, right? Okay, that's just cosmetic. Yeah. I See, mean, you you that's, say that's this, pretty... but it depends on what you're really making. Uh, in my experience, like the the marble stuff doesn't machine too well because of all the random strands. If you machine it, yeah. it's the one to have voids. Yeah. But like, I have a specific product, like my pod friction folder. Uh, I made 30 in marble and 30 in carbon, and mm-hmm. out of marble, only one was a reject due to vo- like too many voids. Mm-hmm. And on the carbon fiber side, I actually have about 22 rejects out of the 30. Hmm. For the simple reason is, there's a thin portion that has a sharp angle to it, and it'll actually delaminate and crack on me. And mm. that happened a lot. Uh, essentially, I would just drop them on the floor about three, yeah. four times and see if they crack. And yeah. I cracked about 22 of them. But the marble, because the weave is going up and down, it's not on actually sitting on a layer. Um, it was plenty strong. So <laughs> essentially, if that if that spot of the handle sat, I guess, in the, between layers, it, they, it cracked out of 30, it cracked 22. And I've tried your carbon, I've tried different carbons. Yeah, uh, it just still getting it. Anything that was weaved or layered, so it had it happened with the unidirectional as well. But since the marble oh. carbon fiber, you're never really sitting on a layer. Uh, those that yeah. didn't happen at all. It's probably your tooling that's breaking the layers apart, though. No, it would it would stay. That's shitty path. tooling, Nick. Bad job. I would uh, say it'll, it'll, I'd it'll go, break Nick. from go shock on, when dropping it. Jeez, Nick. <laughs> yeah, see, I don't. My depth of cut. When I'm doing carbon fiber is real minimal. I do really fast, really small tooling, but my depth of cuts like ten thou. Damn, that's wow. like nothing. Like mm, nothing. That, uh, I just do a lot of positives. I let I, I hammer through shit. Well, I only have six thousand RPMs. So when I was using the router with twenty four thousand RPMs, I was machining it differently. Yeah. Well, the carbon fiber's got more of a propensity to chipping, right? And well, shearing off. If you, nah. if you load it, if you load it hard, it does. Um. Yeah, it, you can like splinter and stuff. It definitely does. It's, uh, it's, it's a shitty yeah. material to machine, mm-hmm. and it's really hard on tooling. It's not even the hard. It's hard on the machine because like the power that comes off of it. Imagine just off, uh, take a pencil and grind it into something, and you have this very fine, fine powder that stains everything. Oh, I and, do everything. Oh, 
Uh-huh. That's exactly what happens with the carbon fiber. My machine looks like you just it's like powders up, like collects you, on everything. Yeah, you, uh, yeah. So I I filter my coolant as it's it, coming it, out of the machine. Yeah, but it clogs my filters instantly with a carbon. Like for no, example, no. like two G ten. I mean, two carbon yeah. fiber plates clogs my yeah. filters as much as like fifteen G ten plates. So I use these. I use cheap pleated house filters. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty much like a whole house water filter, right? No, 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 no. The the cheap furnace filters are like three bucks at Home Depot, and it's like just a pleated piece of fabric. Okay, mm. I run I run it across that before it gets into the tank, which has the filter in it, and that takes ninety nine percent of the particulate out. Yeah, that's my problem with the mini mill. Whoever designed that, the engineer. Yeah, it goes. You, you, you know what I'm talking about. He go fuck himself. Like so. There's no way to filter between the cutter and the sub, and then yeah. like the only access to the 30 gallon tank is like yeah, like a six by eight porthole. Yeah, <laughs> there's like right. it's a stupid design. So I I I filter it out, and it's from my experience, it doesn't become an emulsion. The carbon fiber stays in particulate in solution, so it's not like it's not like a paint. You know, as long as you can trap the particulate, your your coolant goes clear again. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I would uh. So I have two pretty much trash cans, mm-hmm. and I'll take a rub, big ass rubber band, and I have like I think it's thirty micron paper that I buy in the master by like fifty yard rolls, and I'll stretch it over the top, and I'll keep pouring the coolant into the. I'll pour the coolant out of the CNC into the trash can, do okay. that that mesh. And then, and then once that's filtered through, I'll put the mesh on the other trash can and pour it from one trash can to the other trash can and then back into the machine. But like, that's a whole day. It's like, it's like an entire day of work because the filters keep clogging and you have to keep rewrapping it. Yeah. It's, it's a pain. And it's, at least you're doing it under coolant. I I hear a lot of people going on just doing Uh, So the carbon I'll do under coolant because it's so fine. It doesn't come off as chips. It comes off as a powder. G10, I don't do under coolant now. I used to, but now I actually uh, jimmy rig a vacuum to it because it comes off as chips. So you can actually get the vacuum will actually grab it. Yeah. I don't like the carbon fiber, which it doesn't. So the G10, I'll use the vacuum. I'll kind of use the the lock line, the coolant line, and wrap it around the hose. So it moves the, the the hose will move with the head. Mm-hmm. It works very well, but for the carbon, since it's not enough mass, it doesn't really take. Yeah. It, it is a lot of it. So I, I, I tend to do deposits every six months. Yeah, like every six months, yeah. I'll uh, I'll do like right now. I have to do a fuck ton of composite, and my coolant is getting bad. Like it's starting to rust my machine, and it's just old. Mm-hmm. So like now, I'll do a bunch of composite, and I'll empty out the machine, clean it out. There's probably bacteria in there. And yeah, do the, the whole flush the system and then put a new coolant, and then I won't do any composites for a little while. So that's so why I try to plan around times where I'll have to do a full clean out of the machine anyway. Yeah, I hear you. I do that too. Yeah, it's I it's it's bad. So like a dedicated machine will be it will be to go for if it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, that would be nice. Just mm. have a forty k spindle. Yeah, but even if I had like a VF2, like a full size house, I wouldn't mind it because then, like, since the coolant tank is separate, I could put staged filters in. Yeah. But the Haas mini mill, there's no, like, everyone I've ever talked to, there's no way to really add a filter except if you bypass the sub and built your own sub. 
and then repump it back. Yeah, but then like that's so I I I counted the cost to build it and then the time involved. I'm like, honestly, I could just sell this machine and buy the bigger one, and yeah. it's it'll be cheaper. <laughs> like I, I I come up I came up with all these plans. I'm like none of this makes sense. So I I only have a filter, be, uh, between the sub and the cutter. So that way, at least it doesn't shoot like at least it doesn't shoot chips at my cutter. Mm-hmm. And it'll filter out. Then like I have a whole house water filter right before the nozzles. All right, what did I miss? I had to go grab some pizza. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, we talked about what happened. And talked about Colin. what happened in Amsterdam. Some other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, in, so no, but the the carbon fiber business has has been has been a, a successful one for you, and I, I know that you do supply carbon fiber to a great deal of the of the makers uh, and companies that that most people have seen probably not known that that's your carbon fiber. If, yeah. if that's right. Yeah. And I'm cool with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, a, lot of the, a lot of the Kershaw stuff early on. Triple uh, seven. I was just about to seven. say, yeah, get into the triple seven a little bit. Um, so we're on that. The next one they did, I think, was the four fifty four. Mm-hmm. And that had mine on it. Some of the the RJ. Remember that RJ Martin ZT that was had like the diamond shaped texture. I think yeah, so. yeah titanium. It was kind of a big blade, so that had a carbon fiber inlay on some of them. But yeah, it, it, I was a supplier for them for a long time. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So I think we're we're going about two and a half hours. I think it's oh, a good shit. time to start wrapping up. Nice. Got some good stories in there oh. for sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so we'll uh, go through all of Matt, Matt's history because people don't ever like realize how much Matt has done and what yeah. his actual talents are from from journeyman for look journeyman blacksmith, uh, master machinist, quality machining, carbon fiber. It's a supplier. You Switch don't want to say he's a yeah. a master of all trades. Right? Yeah. No, well, it's called jack master, of all trades, but okay, debater, definitely a master. Matt, <laughs> Um, and you don't really, so I mean, the thing is you, so you are, and we joke that you are a knife maker, but you're, you're not taking orders. You just make what you want to make. No, Nobody. I don't, I don't have orders. Yeah. Don't, don't ask Matt to make you anything. He's, he's, not, he's, still, working on, he's still working on orders from 10 years ago. What are you talking about? Right. Yeah, those, I, I threw those away a long time ago. <laughs> Forget about it. It's the way um, to do it. Make what you want when you want. Right. Yeah. But you, you, you will be a blade with some, with some, with some fresh, yeah. freshness. And some, sure. and some goodness. Sounds um, like Blade's going to be pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think it sounds like it's going to be a pretty good loadout. Yeah, from, uh, I think from, the yeah. launches will be pretty popular. And I'm not sure how I'm going to do it. Probably first come, first serve, starting at like Saturday at 1. It's my thinking. Okay. Why not you Friday? Know? Or Friday at 1. That's what I, I was like. Hmm. I will be yeah. there at Friday at 1. So. Definitely want to get. I one think of those. that's probably the fairest way to do it, and maybe get some people lined up. You have too many to do oh, yeah, lotteries sure. and stuff like that. Just yeah, there's going to be a, at, at most twenty of each per inlay material. Okay. Um, now yeah, where should be good? Where where can we? Um, where's the best place to find information about about your blade show drop? Are are you doing promotions anywhere? Put it on uh, the, my Instagram page on the Instagram when I finally get them in. Yeah. Okay. To start taking pictures of the different inlays. And so his Instagram is Matt Diskin, one word, and there's no icon. It, it's it's 
That's it. Fall back route. That's it. Um, that's, that's true OG right there. No, that's no real icon. OG. No so what's icon your what's your blade yeah, show uh, boost number or what 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 can we find you across from the? Oh, shit, I think it's six thirty two. It's like right adjacent from the uh, like right caddy corner from the Wii booth. So okay, it's one of it's one to three center mass like booth clusterfuck areas. Yeah. Okay. So if it's not Microtech, it it's probably Matt. Yeah. Okay. We, we got a good uh, real high traffic location. Oh, very. Yeah. It. Uh, Seems that everyone passes through there at one point. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. What What does your uh, show schedule look like for this year, Matt? I think we're doing a lot of the same stuff. I got yeah. uh, got the gathering. Then I'm going to do Jade's show. Nice. At least, at least uh-huh. be there. Um, the hand built. Then uh, after that is CCAC. Well, oh, the gathering is first. I told him I I don't think i'm getting a table to gathering this year but i'm gonna go oh good come hang out it's it's Uh, always been too much pressure with the year of the france show that i gotta leave 10 days later yeah after the gathering yeah yeah after the gathering so now you do you you exhibit at ccac oh yeah for a long time now Uh, i'll be there for the this is my first time go to the table no, I'm just going. I've never been yeah. there before. Yeah, I don't know what kind time. of clientele is there. If that's like the if I could sell like if my knives are known there or what. So I gotta sure. see that show first before dropping all the money. Plus the, the trip is gonna cost me a lot of money since I'm, my parents are flying out with me well, towards that way. Oh, cool! Bring a couple knives. You can put them on my table. I'm gonna probably just bring like two, maybe like two or three, just to show around. Yeah, doesn't hurt. Yeah, it's it's a it's a vibrant show. There's a lot of people there, and it's it's uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I was supposed to exhibit last year, but uh, that didn't really work out. But this year, I will be exhibiting some stuff, some OEM stuff. Yeah. Now, are you going to Amsterdam with us? That's the true question. That is the true question. Yeah, that is the true question. So my days are. Yeah, what are your days? We need to know. uh, (laughs) I'm going to Amsterdam Sunday. Because the show ends Saturday. Yeah, we were so, thinking about so heading we're out going on Monday. Amsterdam Sunday. <laughs> Is it Sunday um, or Monday morning? <laughs> yeah, so I'll be there through Tuesday night, something like that. Wednesday, so I gotta three... go see. I gotta go see Doc up in England. Oh yeah, the, we, the, the, the tattoo guy. We met him. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to get a tattoo from that guy. You gotta go to it's... Plymouth. Yeah, Plymouth, England. Right. Find your way to Plymouth, England. Yeah, I need to get up there anyway to uh, visit some some homestead of the old family. So, yeah. yeah. What are you going to do? You're going to walk in there like, hello, and leave? Or like, do you still have family that lives out there? And I should Just show them your ID and be like, yeah, this is mine. Like, is that your plan? And then they'll give you like a honorary like hat and be like, all right. I mean, one it's of very us possible because there's like a town. Honorary hat, a slap on the ass, you and the, on your you way. the Nottingham Forest look going already, so fit right Yeah, in. there you go. <laughs> I just popped in from Sherwood here to see what was up. Exactly. Yeah. I came back re- home. Can yeah. reclaim my land. <laughs> For my peoples. Um, Where were they from? Wales? Isham, England. Yeah. Oh, there's a town? Yep. Where is it? It's uh, it's in Northamptonshire. Okay. So it's, it's um, if you Google... Uh, I'm looking right now. Yeah. 
Isham, England, or um, Lampert Hall. That was actually my Twitter. old family's uh, home for a while. Little known fact, the Ishams actually invented the garden gnome, which is pretty cool. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Midlands. Yep. Yeah, it's up there. It's like 65, 70 uh, kilometers north of, north north of, of London. Yeah, do, you, do you guys want to do an outro and then bullshit? Whatever, sit around talking yeah, about carbon back. fiber fucking yeah, dust for like an yeah, hour. We're talking about gnomes, shit about that. Like, I put a filter over my garbage can. Like, shut up, Nick. Nobody cares about that. All right. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. We're just talking about bullshit All right. now. You got to pause for a second. Should be fun to edit. It's, gonna be a bl- it's always a blast listening to everyone's voice all over again in my head. <laughs> um, do you want me all to right, do so that intro? yeah, do, let, let me after. let me let me let me do the finish up, and then we'll do the um. You're you're, you're leaving all this in, right? <laughs> yeah, you might as well at this point. <laughs> yeah, so, all right, uh, so that sounds like shut up, Nick. <laughs> I'm gonna do the outro. Shut up, Nick. <laughs> Nobody talk for like five seconds. Okay, so that sounds like a, a really good uh, position for, for your Blade Show booth. It sounds like you're going to have a, an awesome awesome drop probably around 1 p.m. on Friday for those launch eights. Um, we've got your Instagram where people can find out. Do you, do you Facebook at all? Um, I do have Facebook. It's a little more personal. but Okay, all right. Well, we'll keep it, keep, keep it that way. But um, either way, come to Blade Show. Uh, come see Matt. Say hi. Uh, yeah. Thank, thank you so much for, for coming on uh, the Bladeology podcast and, and hanging out with us and, and talking trash about knives. Uh, I, I appreciate that. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. All right, get, your story out. Very, very good. get your story out there finally, properly. Cough, cough, knife, yeah. Let's cough. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Okay, so, um, so this is Nick Chuprin. Uh, you can find me at NCC Knives at Instagram and NCC Knives at Yahoo.com or NCCKnives.com. Uh, this is Elijah Isham. You can find me on my Instagram at IshamBladeWorks and my personal Instagram at there This is Jeremiah Burbank. It's been a pleasure. Uh, my day job is on Instagram at, at pvk.vegas. Uh, my personal Instagram is just pvkjer. Um, thanks so much, everybody. Um, Matt, lead us out. Yep, this is Matt Diskin. Thank you guys very much. Out. <laughs>